This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Happy Wednesday. It's quite a uh, it's quite a day. Donald Trump, deep in the transition efforts, has now uh, made a vow that he'll be cutting all of his business ties from his family company so that he can focus solely on the presidency. In total. In total. Quote, unquote. Yeah. That's great news. Uh, who knows if it actually, what it actually does. He feels it's visually important. Yeah. The funny thing is, I have a feeling he'll still be talking to his kids every day about business. And so if they're running the company and he's just removed himself. The other side of it, if he's talking to a world leader, he's going to know if he has a hotel in that country. Absolutely. So you can't really separate yourself. And that's been one of the problems because Ivanka has been involved in some meetings with foreign leaders and where they have business dealings. Yeah. It's kind of weird. But just like you said, it's visually important. So it just needs to look like he's not running the country or the company. See, this is the deal. And we will be speaking with an expert on presidential transitions. He he wrote a four-part series for Vox.com about presidential transitions. And I want to find out what he thinks about how Donald's doing. Because... It's he, he is there probably has not been a more um, what's the word visually mm. stimulating transition where we have reporters standing at a bay of uh, elevators just outside yes uh-huh. and just and now that now it's, uh, C-SPAN is live streaming it if you want to watch on a daily <laughs> basis yeah unbelievable so we will get uh, we'll get we'll be talking about transitions today um, uh, Mitt Romney last night as well had a dinner with Reince Priebus and Mr. Trump and if you're bored Twitter had fun with that so you can look yeah. those up well and we'll, we'll give you we'll get some audio in a minute from Romney on that it's just so much going on I mean Nancy Pelosi's they'll be voting today the Democrats will to see if they want to keep her as the uh, what do they call her? The <sighs> minority leader. Minority of the house. leader of the house. Yeah, hmm. she'll be the chief person to stand up and go no, and they'll go eh, and they vote her out. Tim Ryan, I believe, is the guy running against her, and his yes. big point is: look, I'm just going to use a sports metaphor. It's about the numbers. We're down 60 seats since Nancy Pelosi took over ten years ago, eight years ago, whatever it was, mm. ten years ago. And uh, good point. Something needs to change. Nice. A, it really is a great argument. And uh, Tim's from Ohio, the Midwest. Nancy's from California, Napa Valley-ish area. She doesn't understand what's going on in the Midwest. Mm. Very so, Republican way of going about getting a mm. Democratic office. It's kind of crazy, yeah. It's great. So we'll find out uh, today if Nancy Pelosi can hold on to her seat. Most are saying for sure. She's got enough dirt she's, on everyone. She's starting to take some of those responsibilities that she has and give them to other people so it doesn't look like she has this center of power. Mm-hmm. And make, smart. You know, yeah, she's built a bigger team now. They're all building bigger yeah, teams. Big team. The problem with the, a lot of these teams is they don't necessarily represent, again, the middle of the country. Eh. <laughs> eh. Fly over country. This seems like you might want to pay attention to that for the next few years. We'll get to all of that fun. 
um, and also continue to just celebrate life, you know. Life is still good. And of course, there are many places that are suffering from tornadoes, suffering from fire. Fire. Dollywood is safe, but ah, oh, that was close, super close. So our prayers go out to all of them. Um, and uh, Jeffrey, today's yes. got to be a special day. Are we celebrating anything special today? Any special day note? Isn't it? Stay home because you're well day. Yes. So what are the two of you doing here? Yeah, I feel great. I, I wanted I, I wanted so badly to, but I thought I needed to be here for you because you're kind of sick. Well, I, I could have uh, manned the ship by myself and, uh, yeah, why don't you go home? <laughs> <laughs> it's stay home if you're well day. So if you're well, today's the day you just stay home and you just take a good, healthy, well day. Take a you day. You guys right now are like men that shave their heads but are fully capable of growing a full set of hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So you're here now and you should be home because you're well. Mm -hmm. I'm here even though I'm not well. You see what I'm getting at here? Yeah, and I don't want to be rude, but you look horrible. I mean, I mean that in the best way possible. Hmm. You're a monster. Jeff's been battling colds, and he makes money on his voice. Yes. So it's like it's like an Olympic athlete, you know, losing a limb for a few months. Now, wasn't there weeks. that Olympian that had like those the blades, the blades? The blade yeah. Oh, he was amazing. Until until, I, until yeah, until the domestic he, problem. Yeah. Hmm. We'll get to all of that. Fun. At least things are fine at home. Well, you, you really, we wish you the best and your health. <laughs> yeah. Let's you know we'll end uh, we'll end early today so you can get home. So right like at ten nine fifty nine. Okay, we won't linger longer after all that fun, folks. Uh, plus, just an update, of course, on Jeff's health. And if you have a good doctor, give us a call one eight eight chat BYU one eight no one eight five five one eight five five chat BYU. All that uh, is straight ahead. But first, let's get to the headlines with Sadie Nielsen. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Sadie, what's up? The incoming Trump administration and United Technologies have reached an agreement that will keep close to 1,000 jobs at Carrier Corporation, which is owned by United Technologies in Indiana. Carrier had planned to move production from a key factory in that state to Mexico, taking with it roughly 1,400 jobs of those who work at the Indiana plant. While terms of the deal are still not clear, the sources indicated there are new incentives on offer from the state of Indiana, where Pence is governor, that helped clear a path for the agreement. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Tuesday sharply broke from President-elect Donald Trump's declaration that flag burners ought to be jailed and have their citizenship revoked. The Supreme Court has held that the activity is protected is a protected First Amendment right, the top Republican senator told reporters. In this country, we have had a long history of protecting unpleasant speech. McConnell reaffirmed his support for the 1989 Supreme Court decision in Lawrence v. Texas, which ruled flag burning to be protected speech. President-elect Donald Trump is likely to pick Stephen Turner Munchen as his Treasury Secretary after Munchen served as a national finance chairman for the presidential campaign. Munchen is a Wall Street veteran who worked at Goldman Sachs for 17 years and went on to become a financer of movies like Avatar. The choice runs counter to Trump's anti-establishment message and frequent bashing of of Hillary Clinton for her paid speeches to Goldman Sachs throughout her campaign. 
And finally, yes. um, in the news of the storms and everything going on right mm. now, a man in Ontario proved the theory that your car really is the safest place to be in a thunderstorm. Mm. While traveling in a car on a road in Ontario, the man was filming when a bolt of lightning struck the front of the car, causing the occupants of the vehicle to cry out in shock before laughing at their close call. Wow. This storm has already produced two tornadoes. Unexpectedly, we were suddenly struck by lightning in the vehicle I was driving. That's and a big deal. It was pretty scary. I was watching it. And, You'd think uh, it would fry the instruments or something. Yeah, but it, it really proved the car is the safest place to be mm-hmm. in a lightning storm. You know, when I was in high school, I was going to a concert with my mom, and our stadium was struck by lightning while we were walking through the parking lot. Ooh. And it probably was one of the scariest moments of my entire life because the, the whole earth just yeah. shook. Yeah, <laughs> so, to your core. I, I was on an airplane that was struck by lightning once, and I scary. lost it. Did you? Did you cry? Well, I had to actually remove the lady's fingernails from my arm <laughs> that was sitting next to me as she was doing the rosary, and it was terrifying. I was and, on an airplane one time, and uh, I looked out the window, and there was something on the wing, some Like thing. an elf? Like a, like a little elf? Like a, but nobody a, believed me. It was a gremlin. Was it a gremlin on the wing? Nobody believed me. Was it an engine? Was there an engine hanging on the wing? But then <laughs> when we landed and they saw that the, all the, you know, the cords and, and mechanics of the wing were just torn to shreds, then they believed me. It was a gremlin. It was a gremlin. But by then it was too late. I was already in a straitjacket. There you go. It's a great story. It's a great story. Had a great end to it. Thanks. We're glad you're out. Now you can join us. You always love the people who tell you about their stint in the insane asylum. Yeah. That's a good story, though. Thanks, Sadie. Boy, Sadie's lucky to be alive. Just, Lightning you don't mess with, you know? No. Well, works out for some. Mm-hmm. But it is better Fra- to be— Fra- Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. The, he, fly, oh. the Flash. Thank you. Where thank you, by the way. The Flash. The Flash. Totally. There you go. He said Frankenstein's monster. Thank yeah, you for not saying Frankenstein. If I didn't, somebody was going to speak up and be irritated. <laughs> I just am surrounded by geeks that know too much. You have to be literarily correct on that one. This is um, this is a big day. Speaking of um, monsters. Careful. Now, how do you put this? Hmm. Your corner. Today we're talking about it. transitions, presidential okay. transitions. The transition itself can be a monster. It's a monster because, you know, did you know that some people start the transition like when they're just tying up the nomination. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems early, right? Like, I don't want to, like, be presumptuous that I'm going to win, but a lot of them start figuring out how they're going to transition. Right. Which... Like, like Trump Trump had some um, criticism because he hasn't really – he didn't really pay attention to it until he won the election. Right. But why should he pay attention to it? No, yeah. If you're still fighting for the job, and then, yeah, nobody seems, thought he would even win. Well, there's that, but I mean, it just seems like you're you're splitting your focus if you yeah. start paying attention to your Secretary of State before you even won the election. I bet Hillary had her entire cabinet already oh, chosen. Yeah. Yeah. I think she already had the colors. For she had the... a scrapbook, and it was put together when she was 12. And... <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's got to be. That's they, they, by the way, have you seen the thing on Twitter about how everyone's seeing sightings of Hillary yeah. in the woods? 
<laughs> is she wearing a clown mask? Apparently she goes on a lot of walks She's in the woods and then people just keep seeing her and they take pictures with her. But then others started adding other times that they've seen her in the woods. She's and turning into the Unabomber. The Unabomber and Sasquatch. Yeah. And I think I saw somebody. <laughs> I think her doctor told her she needed that fresh air. Yeah. You got to get out there. Hey, uh, t- big big decisions um, being made with uh, t- today, in fact. I thought there was supposed to be an announcement today about Secretary of State. I thought I heard that sure. somewhere. I mean. But uh, Romney last night went to dinner with Trump and Reince Priebus. One of the questions the press asked was, so who paid for the meal? Right. He didn't answer that. Right. But this is what Mitt Romney said after the dinner with the, the Donster. I had a wonderful uh, evening with uh, President-elect Trump. Uh, we had another discussion about uh, affairs throughout the world. And uh, these discussions I've had with him have been uh, enlightening. And interesting and, uh, and engaging. I've enjoyed it very, very much. Uh, I, uh, I was also very impressed by the remarks he made on his victory night. He's impressed. He's also got hope. And he continues with a, a message of inclusion and bringing people together. Uh, and his vision is something which obviously connected with the American people in a very powerful way. The, uh, the last few weeks, he's been carrying out a transition effort. I have to tell you, I've been impressed by what I've seen in the transition effort. The, uh, all of those things combined uh, give me uh, increasing hope that uh, President-elect Trump is the very man who can lead us to that, that better future. There you go. Increasing hope. Increasing hope. So he went from hopeless, mm. reckless abandon mm. to I now have an increasing hope. I was going to pull the clip of all the things that he called him back in what? March, mm-hmm. April. That was a great but like, I thought, litany yeah, of stuff. We'll let that go. Uh, by the way, Newt Gingrich still, you know, he he's he's not quite on board with Romney. But to say, I think that it's outrageous, and and uh, that uh, if, if you look at what Mitt said over the last year, and you look at this is not like team of rivals. Nobody in Lincoln's cabinet opposed him in the general election. Romney said vile and vicious things. Uh, Romney opposed him all the way up to the election. Uh, Romney has no, in my judgment, Romney will be a very high risk. Trump's a big boy, and if he decides this is what he wants to do. Uh, but I do think it would be very high risk, because I think uh, that Romney has uh, zero interest in the Trump revolution and every interest in uh, reestablishing his own credentials. Hmm. Interesting. So uh, Newt Gingrich not on board with Romney. No. But also apparently not being really seen as a candidate for Secretary of State, or I don't see very other cabinet positions right. for Newt Gingrich. So it almost seems like Newt's a little angry. Sour grapes. Sour grapes. Um, because Newt's not just picking on Romney. He's also picking on Donald Trump's uh, need to Twitter and tweet all night long. I think the worst thing he did was the tweet the other night about illegal votes. I mean, you know, the presidency of the United States can't randomly tweet without having che- having somebody check it out. I mean, it just, uh, it, it makes you wonder about whatever else he's doing. It, it, it undermines much more than just a single tweet. So I'd say that's probably the biggest single thing he's done wrong. Do you think there's any evidence that there were millions of illegal votes cast? No. There you go. There it is. <laughs> no. Which is interesting because I think now I figured out what job Newt Gingrich wants. What's that? Chief fact checker? Yeah. He needs somebody needs to fact check the tweets before they go out. Somebody. And he said that. Some, he needs somebody needs to look at that stuff before it goes out. And I think he's vying for that position. Yeah, the, the reporter she follows up with were there any 
you know, illegal votes. And he just goes, no. And no. she just kind of looks at him for a beat. Okay, moving on. We all know there weren't. <laughs> it's interesting. The transitions, they're, they're, they're kind of a, they're a mess. And everybody's got an opinion about Donald, uh, but boy, what if he chose Mitt Romney, who was an enemy throughout the entire process? You do need to remember that a certain percentage of Republicans didn't like Trump, right? You know, some people didn't like Trump, didn't vote for Trump, wouldn't vote for Trump. In fact, maybe if Trump could have brought on Mitt Romney earlier, maybe he could have had a stronger showing. Anyway, crazy times. We will take a break. When we come back, we will be talking about presidential transitions, past, present, and future. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Just helping you stay informed. President Barack Obama and President-elect Donald Trump met for the first time earlier this month looking towards Trump's presidential transition. Over a formal 90-minute meeting and many follow-up phone calls since, President-elect Trump and President Obama will plan for a peaceful transition of power. How is this presidential transition different from others? Have there been any notable presidential transitions? Here to speak with us today is Dr. Richard Skinner, a policy analyst at the Sunlight Foundation, focusing on transparency issues. He's also a professor of American politics for the Washington Center for Internships and Academic Seminars at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Skinner, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Matt. It's great to be here. These transitions... um, It's a huge deal. 4,000 jobs, right, need to be transitioned, uh, and an entire administration of the federal government needs to be changed. And yet, uh, amazingly, it's only been, I guess, since since Carter that that we were spending even, you know, more than five, six months on this. Is that right? Yeah. uh, I mean, for a long time, transitions were very informal. Uh, particularly in the days when the inauguration was on March 4th. There was plenty of time, not that many decisions to be made. But as the federal government grew and became more complex, presidential transitions became more formal. They started earlier. Uh, The big step with Carter really was having some sort of formal apparatus set up before the election. Um, and uh, Carter was, of course, something of a policy wonk, and he was aware of uh, the problems faced by administrations trying to set up shop in a very short period of time. So he actually had people working on transition issues as early as the previous spring, basically as soon as he clinched the Democratic nomination. But that was entirely run by the campaign. It's been actually much more recently that that's become a formal process assisted by the federal government. Uh, You saw uh, cooperation between the Georgia B. Bush administration and the Obama and McCain camps uh, really from around June in 2008 uh, going through the election. Mm. And then that process was made much more formal in 2010. So it's really pretty new that 
uh, you have a formal pre-election process assisted by people in the federal government. Well, and I guess, too, being funded now by the government itself, is the government's, the government's taking care of the bill now? Yeah, uh, they don't fund, they provide office space, I believe they provide some staff. It doesn't, they take, don't take over uh, operations entirely until after the election. Uh, right now, the Trump transition is split between the highly visible part that's going on in Trump Tower and a much less visible operation that's on Pennsylvania Avenue just down the street from the White House. Uh, and they've had people working there. Uh, for months uh, before the election, that up through the election, both camps had people uh, preparing for the transition, actually in the same building at 1715 mm. Pennsylvania. You, uh, your four-part series on Vox.com, it's fascinating, I think, one reason simply because the, the history of this, um, it, it seems like you... The government is the government. So I'm assuming if I go into the State Department, if Romney, for example, becomes the head of the State Department, maybe he'll go in and insert a team around him, I'm assuming. But really, he, isn't he pretty much going to keep most of the most of the the employees that are already there are going to stay there, right? Yes, absolutely. The great majority of, of employees in the federal government are career people who were there before, you know, the current administration will be there afterwards. But in the White House, uh, it's different. I, yeah, and I think, uh, you know, you have, set, as you mentioned, 1,200 Senate-confirmed presidential appointees, a couple thousands of other presidential appointees, but beneath them very large numbers of career people. And I suspect they're going to be more important than usual in this transition, given that you have uh, a, a president-elect and his core team who are not very experienced in government, mm. and you also have uh, talk that, you know, while Trump should have no problem filling cabinet posts, sometimes the really tricky posts, the really critical posts to fill are the sub-cabinet posts, you know, the deputy assistant secretaries, mm. the members of this or that commission. And there's, all, there's been some talk that the normal Republican uh, policy people who would normally serve in a Republican administration are a little reluctant to serve under Trump. And that may mean that there are key decisions being made by uh, career people mm. uh, to a greater extent than you've had in previous administrations. Is, um, it seems like we keep hearing about some of the infighting in the Trump transition team, but this infighting has gone back uh, to other presidential transitions as well. Did, give us some history. Where else have you seen infighting? Where else has the transition been a little more difficult? Sure. Probably the most conspicuous example of infighting was in 1992 uh, with the Clinton transition, where Clinton, like Carter and like Reagan, had set up a transition team working before the election. Uh, but this transition team actually had fairly poor relations with uh, the campaign. The transition people were in Washington. The campaign people were in Little Rock. After the election, the campaign people kind of shoved aside the people who have been working on the transition. There's a lot of open conflict. Uh, at the same time, a lot of bickering back and forth between Washington and Little Rock. Um, Clinton was very absorbed with selecting a cabinet, but 
he uh, did not uh, active fill White House staff until fairly late. Hmm. And so in a lot of ways, it's seen as the, probably the most poorly handled transition in recent times. Uh, there are other conflicts that have gone on. Sometimes it's a conflict between uh, people who are personal loyalists to the president and people sort of who have had a broader career in party politics. Uh, Nixon both had people who knew him from the old days when he was vice president, and he had people who had worked on his more recent campaigns. And there was conflict in his transition because he was pretty conspicuously uh, favoring the new guys, hmm. Aldermans and Ehrlichmans, who had worked on the recent campaigns, uh, once again kind of shoving aside the people who had experience in the Eisenhower administration. Uh, most famously, his uh, one of his top campaign aides, Bob Haldeman, became his chief of staff and demanded and got the right to have total control of access to the president. And when she learned of this, uh, Nixon's longtime personal secretary, Rosemary Woods, is said to have responded with an obscenity. People <laughs> said it was probably the only one she'd ever used in her life <laughs> when she realized that she would not be able to see the president whenever she wanted to. Interesting. So that is so funny because she's yeah. known him better than anybody, and then all yeah. of a sudden she's moved out by some – because chief of staff is a huge position for the president, Absolutely. right? Because Absolutely. Because that's, that's politically who moves – it's who moves Congress, interacts with Congress too, right? Uh, well, to some extent, although uh, presidents also, of course, have a legislative affairs staff. Probably the most important thing the chief of staff does is just run the White House day-to-day, mm. control access to – the president control the flow of papers to pre- the president, control the president's schedule, um, you know, manage all the different people working in the White House. That's probably the most important role that a chief of staff plays. Some chiefs of staff, uh, like Haldeman or Jim Baker under Reagan or Leon Panetta under Clinton, have been very powerful. Others uh, have preferred kind of a more of a clerical role. Uh, we'll have to see what Priebus decides to do. Hmm. Um, I think in the case of Reagan, he was somebody who was able to handle that sort of uh, uh, personnel conflict and manage the White House fairly well. By On the one hand, he had his longtime friend, Ed Meese, who had worked with him in California, who was sort of the guardian of conservative ideology, but by all accounts was a terrible manager. And then you had James Baker, who had actually – Managed the campaigns of both Reagan's leading <laughs> opponents. He managed Ford in 76 and George H.W. Bush in 80. But Reagan was convinced that he was the guy to actually run the White House. And so Baker got all the administrative stuff. Uh, and that, you know, functioned fairly well. That, that Baker was chief of staff, Meese was a counselor to the president. And at least Early on, the Reagan White House functioned pretty well because of that. It seems like it's such a big decision. And if you've been somebody who's run an organization, who knows, who yeah. really is a, a true leader of kind of bureaucracy, is I mean, it, it, it's got to help to like have a, a truly organized chief of staff. But it also seems like a lot of them, a lot of the presidents fall prey to bringing in their loyalists, like you said, their friends, like the FOBs, the friends of Bill. Um, But also uh, it was Jimmy Carter that brought in a lot of his Atlanta, Georgia people, and then they got in and ended up, I guess, being overwhelmed and um, 
and getting in a lot of trouble. Right, and those Georgians had uh, really bad relationships with people in the cabinet, people in Congress who were more veterans of Washington. Uh, Clinton initially picked a longtime friend, Mac McClarty, as his chief of staff. He had no Washington experience. He was an Arkansas businessman, and he um, really was a very weak chief of staff for a president who tended towards disorganization and kind of needed somebody to run the show. Hmm. Uh, and so the first year or so, the Clinton White House was just kind of this madhouse of meetings that never ended, of people who came in to see the president at will. And, you know, people realized that even though Clinton was a young, vigorous guy, he only had so much energy. <laughs> and uh, this, was not, this was not a good process. Uh, by contrast, later on, uh, Clinton brings in Leon Panetta, who is a Washington veteran, and, and you know Panetta runs the White House pretty well, not in a lockstep kind of militaristic way, which wouldn't be appropriate for someone like Clinton, but in a way that allowed Clinton to use his time more productively. Right. Um, I think with Trump, there are already some signs that he wants a White House that doesn't have a very strong top-down organization that he wants something that's pretty decentralized i would say that's that's probably something that's a model that has not worked very well in the past mm. and it'll be interesting to see what role Priebus plays given that Priebus, on the one hand is a political insider been chairman of the rnc uh, on the other hand, he's not someone who's ever worked in government. He's not like a baker or Panetta who's going to know uh, everybody in town, who's going to know how everything runs. Uh, so it'll be interesting. I mean, I think it's, we're already seeing signs that Trump is a guy who actually, no matter what he thinks needs to be managed, needs to have people focusing his energies in a productive way. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think probably a strong chief of staff would be good for that. But yeah. We'll have to see if he actually wants that. It's uh, We'll take a break and come back. We're speaking with Dr. Richard Skinner about uh, his article in Vox.com uh, um, about presidential transitions. It's a four-part series there. And just interesting, um, intriguing insights. When we come back, we'll get into the Trump transition and uh, be picking Dr. Skinner's brain about that. Really, uh He's, he's picking some, some fairly strong people, very opinionated about certain policies, and maybe uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what that means. Maybe that is the decentralization. Uh, stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you, uh, you know, gain any insight we can about what's going on politically. We'll be right back. Townsend Show. We are talking about the presidential transition that's currently underway with uh, President-elect Donald Trump and uh, Vice President-elect Mike Pence. Joining us on the line is Dr. Richard Skinner. He's a policy analyst at the Sunlight Foundation. He also is a professor at the American Politics for the Washington Center for Internships and Academic Seminars. 
at Johns Hopkins University. Um, he, he one of the interesting things that you really ought to go look up on Vox.com if you if you're trying to understand the history of these transitions, four part series about the transitions written by Richard Skinner. And uh, Richard, you really got into so much of the, the history of it. When yeah. you look now at Donald Trump's transition, how, how do you see it's going? Well, um, it's, it's certainly an interesting transition. One thing I would say complementarily, in a complementary fashion, is it's now taking place at a faster pace than people thought it would right after the election, yeah. uh, that he's actually naming a lot of these positions in a fairly prompt fashion. He's also staffing up the White House staff uh, fairly quickly, which is absolutely something that people recommend. Uh, for a variety of reasons, it's important to have people like the White House counsel in place so they can do things like help people get through uh, the financial disclosure mm, process, conflicts of interest, right. Senate confirmation, yeah, uh, those sorts of things. So I'd, I'd say that is better than expected. It's definitely kind of an eccentric order of cabinet positions that have been announced. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's you know normally you hear about you know state and defense right off you know right off the bat. Yeah, and the other positions you know they're named on Christmas Eve or something. Uh, while here you see like education, uh, mm-hmm. the UN ambassadorship announced uh, very early on, uh, and you know state and defense still not filled. So that's a little eccentric. Well, is it I public? Is, is it more public than normal? It seems like we, or is it just the media is in a frenzy post election? It just seems like we're hearing a lot yeah. about, or is I, I that just say, Trump work in the media? Yeah, I'd say transitions are always crazy times. Uh, there's so little time to make decisions. Uh, there's so many decisions to be made. But um, I'd say just all of this is a lot more public than normal. Uh, you know, there's always speculation about who's Secretary of State, but not only is that decision usually maybe have been made privately long before it's announced publicly. Uh, it's usually not this public, like we saw with uh, Trump taking Romney to dinner last night. Right. People like Giuliani very openly lobbying for the position. So I'd say that is different. I think it's normal to have leaks of oh, there's conflict over this job or that job. Uh, but but this is this is unusual. I don't know to what extent it's deliberate by Trump that he figures this is a way to build excitement. Although I don't really see the obvious need. More mm-hmm. excitement in running a presidential transition. I mean, he's been elected. He doesn't need any. He's really all the attention he can handle. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, well, but then he is Donald Trump. Maybe he can handle more yeah. than the rest of us. Maybe, maybe this is what he needs. Yeah. People have said that, that, say, for example, the fact that he's actually having these victory rallies, this might be more about his own personal hmm. uh, needs. But uh, I would say Trump is facing some unusual challenges for a transition. The first and most obvious is you have a president-elect and many people around him who have no experience in government at all. Right. And while we're, we're used to having governors or senators come in as president who maybe don't have a huge amount of experience with the executive branch, uh, this, this, is, this is far different. And we're also used to having incoming presidents-elect be surrounded by people 
who uh, oftentimes had worked at the highest levels of government before. I think you saw that with both Obama and George W. Bush, that they were surrounded by people uh, who had worked in previous administrations, who had worked on Capitol Hill. Uh, you don't really see that with Trump. Hmm. Another major problem is that um, Trump really didn't have the neural policy staff that a campaign has. And one of the major tasks of a transition is taking those sort of vague policy proposals and, you know, turning them into concrete plans of action, how you're actually going to implement this, what bills need to get to Congress and what time, what actions can be taken just in the executive branch. Uh, here, you know, Trump is starting way behind on that and that he, his policy proposals were exceptionally vague. There really wasn't much effort to flesh them out. And now all of a sudden he's a president-elect who actually has to uh, carry these out. Mm. Um, I think a more fundamental problem is that, honestly, it sounds like Trump and much of his circle honestly didn't expect he was going to win. <laughs> surprise, uh, surprise. That kind of explains some right. of the actions that they, they, they took or didn't take that, uh, like so many people, until about 9 p.m. on election night, uh, they may have assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to be elected mm -hmm. and didn't do a whole lot of this work. I mean, it's normal for these cabinet positions to be, you know, announced in roughly the time frame that Trump does. What I think is different is it doesn't sound like Trump really had people in mind for jobs like state and defense uh, before the election while that's actually you know, pretty common. I know that George W. Bush had a number of people in mind for his cabinet, in mind for his White House staff, even before Election Day. And that was also in a very close election, so that there was no guarantee that he was going to win. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Obama had people, you know, some pretty high-level people working on transition issues going back into the spring of 2008. So they were pretty well prepared for this. Uh, Trump did have a transition team under Chris Christie. Of course, Christie ended up being forced out by Mike Pence yeah. right after the election, which seems to have delayed things a bit. Uh, I think you're already seeing Pence's fingerprints over a lot of the cabinet positions uh, that have been announced. I think the, the White House staff seems much more like people that Trump himself is comfortable with, even if nobody else is. Right. Uh, In fact, talk about Steve Bannon. Post. Yeah. What I do you think, think of Bannon, that? Yeah, I think Bannon is he, Bannon as, you know, state presidential strategist or whatever you want to call him. And Mike Flynn at the, at the NSC are probably the two most controversial decisions why, uh, Trump has made. Uh, Flynn, while he has, you know, a good resume in that he was the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, I think he's got a history of, I guess you could say, charitably eccentric statements <laughs> and, and sort of eccentric worldviews that particularly if you have a president who doesn't know very much about foreign policy and therefore might be very dependent upon people like his national security advisor, that, that, that troubles some people. And I think with Bannon, uh, there, there are multiple ways in which he's uh, a problematic figure in the White House. Uh, the first, of course, lots of people think that if he is not a white national himself, himself, he certainly seemed alarmingly comfortable with them. Mm -hmm. And 
And I think that particularly seems to have made him just an absolutely repellent figure to Democrats in Washington. On the other hand, he's someone who's been very critical of congressional Republicans. I think probably a lot of congressional Republicans not only find the same things troubling that Democrats do, but find a lot of his economic views a little eccentric. Uh, I think if Bannon was named for a cabinet position, he probably would not be confirmed. Mm. Same thing for Flynn. So you end up with a White House staff with, you know, Bannon, Flynn. Previous is a fairly uncontroversial. Yeah. He, he picked uh, they, Tom Price, right? Tom Price over for Health and Human Services, who's right. an, who's an adamant opponent of Obamacare and right. is probably the most has the most advanced plan apparently um, right. of of how to repeal and replace. So it almost seems like he he's picking Congress people. He picked uh, is it Elaine Cho um, to Elaine be Chow, yeah. oh Chow to be uh, to be transportation secretary. Wife of Senate Majority Mitch McConnell, a one trillion dollar uh, appropriation bill would need to go through for transportation. I mean, right. it's almost like he's he is stacking some of these positions to to, to I guess uh, reply to or at least tackle the promises he's made. Yeah, I think uh, the cabinet nominations he's announced so far uh, have most people have joked. There's nobody's nominated who couldn't have been nominated by Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. Uh, or there's or maybe better way of putting it. There's this is maybe Mike Pence's cabinet as much as it is Donald Trump. Mm. That Pence is the one who actually knows these people, actually has more of a background in policy. Uh, Price is, as I think you're correct to say, is exactly the right person if your goal is to repeal and replace mm. Obamacare in a you know strongly conservative sort of root and branch fashion. I think they're already signed. He may have the most confirmation trouble of all of them. Not that he would actually lose, but it really sounds like Democrats want to turn this into a fight yeah. over his plans for Medicare. That's the yeah, that's uh, the but that that's that's kind of a normal confirmation fight to mm. say like this guy has some controversial views that we think will play very badly with the public. We're going to try to publicize these as much as possible. He also Chow, has a lot of billionaires, right? I mean, a lot of billionaires. More billionaires yeah. per pound on a cabinet than any other cabinet. Yeah, we have seen Mnuchin at Treasury, Wilbur Ross uh, at Commerce, Betsy DeVos at Education. Mm. It's a very, very wealthy cabinet, and you know, people already noting. You know, the ironies of a guy who claims to have been a populist, and yet these are the people he chooses, particularly you know, someone like Mnuchin, who is you know, involved with mm. anything from foreclosures and the housing crisis. Uh, I think the people take some jabs at him for that. But um, on the other hand, you know, Chow, a very, very conventional pick at transportation. People have even noted that uh, she's on the exact same career path that Elizabeth Dole did. Right. Uh, she's married to a Senate floor leader. She served as Secretary of Labor and then as Secretary of Transportation. Um, DeVos will, you know, should not face any real confirmation problems. Uh, the teachers' unions loathe her, mm. but that's not very surprising in a right. Republican cabinet. Uh, Haley is someone who you would expect to be in a Republican cabinet, but it's kind of strange that they sent her to the United Nations. Yeah, given that she doesn't have any foreign policy experience, and and it seems like he's trying, uh, he's getting 
some minorities, um, not quite, it doesn't seem like yet, the level that uh, um, President Obama had. But um, and, and women as well. I mean, he, he says he has more leaders, female leaders in his company and treats them well and pays them right. We appreciate you, Dr. Richard Skinner. Thank you so much for your insights uh, about the transition process. Boy, it's a tough job. Can you imagine? 4,000 people you got to replace. 1,200 or so have got to be approved by Congress. <laughs> what a tough job. Well, someone's got to do it. I guess that's why he ran. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, wrap up this first hour of the show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live a smarter, healthier life. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know, it never ends. you got to choose your transition team. Then your team has to choose all of your cabinet members. You have to put the 4,000 people in place. Then you got to get your first 100 days ready. But before all of that, you still have to go on your victory tour. Now Donald Trump's going to hit a victory tour. And you got to raise funds and money for your inauguration and your inaugural festivities. Sixty-five to seventy-five million dollars. That is nuts. Yeah. So they're looking for donations, and they've just announced the different packages you can get of kind of bonuses with the money you donate. Maybe this is why he chose so many billionaires. For a million plus, you have four tickets to a leadership luncheon with cabinet appointees and members of the congressional leadership groups. Oh, that sounds great. Also four tickets to an intimate dinner with Mike Pence and his wife, Karen. (laughs) At like Chakarama or where? Eight tickets to a ladies luncheon with the women of the first family. Mm. Eight tickets to a candlelight dinner with appearances by Mr. Trump, his wife Melania, and Mr. Pence. Wow. They may just sneak in, wave, and leave. You'll get VIP tickets to the inaugural parade, concert, fireworks show, uh, the inaugural ball, and an just entertainment. Just for a million bucks? For a million plus, right? And eight tickets to Mr. Trump's swearing-in ceremony. Wow. million dollars gets you some access. He's going to swear if, in, a, in yeah. a ceremony? Oh, he swears all the time. What, what if you don't have a million dollars? Well, the packages stop at 25000 Is that where you just get to watch it on TV? You get two tickets to the parade, concert, fireworks, inaugural wall, and... Two corn dogs. An entertainment-filled welcome reception. That'll be fun. Yeah. And uh, two tickets to the swearing-in ceremony. Okay. So if I had twenty five grand, that's what I would do. Yeah. What if you don't have twenty five grand? They don't really listen to anything lower than that. Just watch CNN? Do, do they you, throw you, in the, the plane ticket to D.C.? Oh, How about that's you. do we I'm get out. to stay at Trump Hotel um, in D.C.? If you pay for it, sure. Sure. Okay. It's probably already booked, though. Yeah, I bet it is. And then there's some question on whether he can still own it and be yeah. president because there's right. some lease issues. I heard that that's where everyone will have to stay when they come to see the president. No, but okay. if you, you know, he's going to look at you and go, so how's your friend Mr. Marriott over there, huh? I notice you're using a Trump <laughs> pen from my hotel down how, the street. How did the courtyard work for you? <laughs> Oh, wait. That's a little different. Oh, wait. Well, that's good. Okay, well, so get your million-dollar ticket. That's good news. Million-dollar ticket. Million-dollar ticket, and you get to pretty much be his best friend for a couple Well, of no, he makes like one appearance. You well, get to be uh, Mike Pence's best friend. That's great. Mike <laughs> Pence has to earn the money. Good stuff. Hour number one. Learned. Didn't we learn a lot there? We'll take a break. Come back. Stick with us. Helping you live longer, smarter, happier lives. We'll be back.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. It is um, It's Wednesday. And as we've now celebrated Black Friday and uh, what was it? Um, spend Cyber all your money Monday. online Cyber Monday. You probably now have financial troubles because you've been spending all your money for the holidays. Uh, today we will be talking about 10 ways to prevent money from ruining your marriage. Mm. Mm. It happens to be like the number one thing people fight about is the money. It's just having too much money. You don't know what to do. You're so filthy rich. Mine right now is not putting my shoes away. Is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she called about that. But she also says you're sick, so you can you deserve to do whatever you want. That doesn't sound accurate. <laughs> Does she not? Yeah, we don't. Want I don't that. get a free pass even when I'm sick. You're a big boy. You can put your shoes away. Yeah, shoes are hard though, because you take them off when you're in a comfy position. And sometimes you're so comfy, you just fall asleep. Then you get up sleepy. Then you just walk right over them. Well, I think what some women don't understand is that us men have a system. You know, you put your shoes in a very specific location because you, at some future point, are going to need them to be in that location for quick access. In case there's an emergency. Yeah. And you need to run out and protect the family. Right. So you want them right by the recliner. Exactly. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. What you need are some stay, some slippers that you wear around the house. And the minute you get in the house, you just put your slippers on. There should be a pair of shoes in every room. <laughs> on the floor. Yes. That's what I agree. I totally agree. Hey, today, by the way, is also stay home because you're well day. A day that I, I'm feeling very healthy and strong today. Uh, I should have stayed home. Jeff, on the other hand, is sickly. Has been for about the last month. I'm giving you my death stare right now. I know. It's making me feel uncomfortable. This is the day that you you actually just take a healthy day and you tell your boss, you know what? I'm going to stay home. I'm a little healthy today and I want to go celebrate my health. But if you're sick, you've got to get to work. And then you got to go wrestle with HR about is that – can you take a sick day for a healthy day? Hmm. Hmm. Ask your HR department. They'll walk you through the technicalities of that. Got a lot of uh, topics today. Also, five reasons snow is the worst part of winter. Wow. Just that's important now because we've just suffered a major storm here in Utah. Was it major, though? Well, I mean, five inches for some people, like from California, Jeff Simpson, it's a big deal. Remember, he was stuck in a snowbank for like six days. But I still came to work. Even though the snowbank was right in front of his house. Your house is right there, Jeff. Um, and he did still come to work. So we'll we'll hear from Leanna Tan. She's not liking snow. She's not a – she doesn't like to be cold. Yeah. Well, there's a way to get rid of that. Put on a jacket? Put on a jacket. Yeah. Or gain some weight. Not too. She is – There's nothing worse than like really skinny people complaining about how cold it is. Because <laughs> I'm sweating like a pig. Sweating like a pig. You need to overeat more. I totally do. All of that fun ahead. But first to Sadie Nielsen with the headlines. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Sadie, what's up? 
Donald Trump is planning to name businessman Wilbur Ross as Commerce Secretary, a transition official told the Wall Street Journal Tuesday. Ross is a longtime ally of Trump's when bondholders were angry over a possible mispayment by Trump's Taj Mahal Casino in Atlantic City and discussed seizing control of it. Ross said the property was worth more than with Trump still around and helped put together a plan that kept him in charge. Elaine Chao, who served as a labor secretary under former President George W. Bush, is President-elect Donald Trump pick for transportation secretary, the Associated Press confirmed Tuesday. Chao was previously involved with the Trump campaign's Asian Pacific American Advisory Committee. She is married to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. In a highly unprecedented move, President-elect Donald Trump will take part in a victory tour to thank his fans and supporters, beginning with the rally Thursday night in Cincinnati. The thank you tour will likely resemble the campaign rallies leading up to the election. And finally, yes. in your... I'll just read it. Police in Canada threatened <laughs> potential holiday drunk drivers by forcing them to listen to Nickelback oh in their boy. squad car. Um, they posted a picture of Nickelback's silver side up alongside a stern warning to those dumb enough to feel they can drink and drive. They said, when we catch you, and we will catch you, on top of a hefty fine, a criminal charge, and years of driving suspension, we will also provide you with a bonus gift of playing the office's copy of Nickelback on the cruiser on the way to jail. The police wow. encouraged citizens attending holiday parties to decide on a designated driver ahead of time to keep the number of local cab companies handy or make plans to stay at a friend's house instead of driving home drunk. Or else you will be listening to Nickelback. Is uh, Poor Nickelback. Poor Nickelback. We were just talking about this. What Whatever happened? Why, I, why are they the brunt of the joke now? I don't know, but it's sad for them. Because all their songs sound the same. It's like almost being known as the Samsung Notebook Seven. They go from they go from a, a song meant for say the, so, the soccer mom station, yeah. they're trying to do something heavy metal and doesn't quite transfer well. And now they're a punishment. Yeah. They're, they're a punitive they are a punishment. Okay, can I'm okay? Are those cuffs too tight? Okay. If I Sorry recall correctly, in your mean tweets, yeah, uh, Terry said that you like Nickelback. Yes, I did. That was very rude. Yeah, that was probably the worst. Because I don't like him. I love him. <laughs> I can't get. A, I think I have one Nickelback song on my on my phone, but I don't know what it is. Oh, I will go look. It's all right. It. They all sound the same. So, oh, you're so anti Nickelback. What did they ever do to you? Nothing really. It's just that's 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 the opinion. That's what people think. Okay, I'm just giving you their. I'm trying to see if I have any Nickelback on my phone. Well, somebody likes them if they keep making all these records, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I think it's just the police department's buying them now. I have Nickelback <laughs> on my phone. What you song do? do you have, Terry? It's called I don't know. Like they do. Well, a, look it up. It's the right song's there. called "Side of a Bullet." Ooh, sounds violent. See? Sounds very violent. Then they do songs that are very poppy, and it's like they they can't stick to a genre, so they it's people see them as being fake. Because ah. you're just trying to make something that's marketable, not something you truly like. Yeah, right. What's the big deal? Yeah. Isn't that like every politician? Well, yeah. That's why people don't like politicians. Here you go. There's my Nickelback. This is a great song. I don't care if they believe in it. This is really? the song I was thinking of. I think this is the most iconic one. Yeah. And oh. if, you, if you play a bunch of songs together, it's all kind of the same okay. thing. I'll have to save that one for after the show. 
Matt's I, post show. I, I, you know what I ought to start doing is bringing the producers in one by one and just have them sit down with me and we listen to a couple songs of Nickelback. Really? Punishment. For what? I don't know. Okay. Wait, what's the punishment? Listening to Nickelback or spending the time with you? <laughs> of course it's the time with me. Because if that's the case, then we're in purgatory. Hey, here's the deal. Uh, have you been feeding the producers? I wasn't aware I was supposed to. Yeah, you need to. I believe they were able to feed themselves. Producer Leanna Tan always, she walks by my office, usually when I'm eating my lunch, and she just kind of lingers. Salivates. This is a moment of character building as they're in school. They're trying to learn how to balance a job with a school and have no money. Yeah. Like, I don't know, I did. You could still feed them. Well, I don't need to feed them. They can, you know, fend for themselves. They seem sad. Food will trickle down. Speaking about weird eating habits, um, a man plans to cross the Atlantic on a catamaran, eating only out-of-date expired food. Hmm. That's an interesting selection. A Frenchman is going to attempt the cross-Atlantic trip on a catamaran. He's only going to eat expired food. Like, Like, really expired. Like, from... He's going to eat... Lentils and rice and honey. That's all he will be eating. The lentils expired in 08. And his his purpose, I think, is to lose hundreds of pounds. Actually, if I read deeper. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, jeez. Oh, apparently he's, uh, apparently he's been trying his new, his new lentil soup. It's going to take about three months of time, and the diet, uh, lentils, rice, and honey, he's doing all of this to basically show that we could, we can eat food that we throw away. We throw away way too much food in, in, the, in the Western world, and people are living on considerably less. So it's a new, it's a new feat, I guess. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, boy. Some audio. Wow. I I think rice, even if it's expired with some honey, sounds really good. Okay. At our at a at a condo we stay at, um, we found some syrup that was from two thousand. It was six. It was nine years, years old. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So did you put some of that on some rice and? Yeah. No. Go at it. No. no. Well. But I'm going to send it to this guy. Yeah, he could use it. He has to cross the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Hey, by the way, we have a new sponsor for the show. Oh, great. And uh, it's it's a dentist. It's called Diddy Dental. Um, anyway, it's pretty powerful. But the, there's a story about a, a woman that went to a dentist under um, anesthetic uh, to, to numb her mouth so that she didn't feel the fact that she had a three-centimeter long... Um, pin drop in how do you okay this woman Mm. didn't feel the sharp pin file drop into her mouth so it was a dental tool she the guy dropped a file yeah like down her throat yeah but she didn't feel it because she, she was, was out of she it. She was anesthetized. So yeah. um, she started to choke because it slipped down her throat, but claimed the dentist didn't call 911 and insisted on driving her to the hospital. Oh, that's nice. She was rushed into a surgery, and the x-rays revealed that the tool had pierced her insides, of course, and oh. lodged in her stomach. Oops. Well, but, he tried to make up for it by right. you know driving her himself. Right. And so 
Anyway, it was a horrible thing that happened to this woman. And we that's why on the show we bring on sponsors because these are people that are professionals. They're mm. not going to drop a file exactly. down your throat. And so our new sponsor is Diddy Dental. And our very own Ron Broca, a distant cousin to Tom Broca, uh, is here to introduce us to Diddy Dental. Hey, friends, it's Ron Broca here to tell you about Diddy Dental. You know, when I was thinking about getting my first set of grills, I went to one of my homies and asked him which dentist had the best selection and the best prices. My number one homie said, hey, why don't you head on over to Dr. Diddy for grills? He got what you need. Well, I took his advice, and I've got to say I couldn't be happier with my experience. Dr. Diddy's office was very chill. He made me feel like I was hanging at my own crib. And Dr. Diddy has hired an all-star staff that really cares, including doctors Funky Fresh, Bubba Gum, and Harvey Rosenthal. So whether this is your first or 51st set of grills, do yourself a favor and go to Diddy Dental. And be sure to tell them that Mixmaster Ronnie sent you, and Dr. Diddy will hook you up with a killer dizzyle. We out. Sounds like a very hip Wow, it's a great sponsor. Beat. Great but beat on that commercial. I like that. The type of dentist that would never drop a file down your throat. No. But he does grills. Hmm. And you'd think, you know, if you're doing a grill, you probably – you got to use a lot of files. I mean, grills are complex, right? He's a hip yep. dentist. Sounds like it. Yeah, we, we've got a very hip show. Funky Fresh. Mm. I mean, who wouldn't want – Bubba Gum. Bubba Gum. And Harvey Rosenthal. It's a great team. Which one's Diddy? Just P – is there a P. Diddy there? I think it might be a franchise. Oh, it's a franchise. Oh, so. uh-huh. P. Diddy. Yeah. Diddy Dental. <laughs> anyway, that's great news. And I hope that woman's okay. Well, she will be when she gets her money from the dentist when she sues. Yeah. That's like that's so like when you hurt your younger sibling. I've never had a younger sibling, but uh, I've you seen it in my own kids. You could have. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you hurt them and you don't want to get in trouble. So you're like, oh, shh, be quiet, be quiet. Uh, you're fine. Uh, you're fine. You're yeah. fine. Yeah. You're I'll, fine. I'll help you. Don't worry. Just hold pressure on it. You'll be fine. Oh, sad story about uh, two moosen. Two what? Moosen. Moosen. Plural. Oh. Uh, two Plural mooses. Moosai. Moosai? That's singular, isn't it? Um, so confusing. Two moose, and, two moose found frozen mid-fight. So they were in a fight, and then apparently they fell through the ice, and then they froze to death. Yeah. In Alaska. The pictures are crazy. It is. We will post the pictures. It's, it is crazy. Their antlers are just above the water line, but they're frozen solid under there. Yeah. Wouldn't it be crazy if when the thaw comes, they just continue their fight? Maybe yeah. they're not. I saw that last night on a TV show. Granted, the person was infected with an alien parasite, but, you know, different. What are you watching? Wait, this wasn't like National Geographic or anything, was it? No. Okay. No. Man. Uh, the two moose were found by Brad, Brad Webster, a middle school social studies and science teacher. It's always the middle school teacher. Oh, but see, how fascinating right. for these kids now. Um but the picture, you'll see them. Their antlers are locked together, which is apparently why they died. Uh, they probably would have made it out right. one way or another. And um, it's just – it's. by the way, they were near a slough at Covenant Bible Camp. Oh, of course. So the poor kids at the Covenant Bible Camp 
They're there to be enlightened, to be enriched, and instead they see the carnage of two moose with their antlers locked up, frozen in a river. Well, maybe the moose in were Bible bashing. Good point. Maybe it was God's will. Taking the moose in. That's when they saw it. They went on a little walk, a little camp walk, and uh, he initially thought it was just one moose that had been shot. But when he got closer and he saw the two moose were stuck, he, he realized what had happened. It was the end of moose rutting season, and the animals likely were fighting over a female moose. Mm. So, uh, of course, I, you know, they're going to blame it on the women. What do you call a female moose? Uh... Misty. Misty. Misty Hmm. Moose. It's a great name for a moose. Five or six members of the staff were called. uh, I mean, Webster speculates that one of the animals was wounded. The other animal's antlers by the other animal's antlers and perhaps died. And the weight of that dead moose hanging from your grill made it so he couldn't get out. Anyway. Go check it out at Dr. Matt show. You're going to want to see the pictures. Pretty amazing. Um, and pray for the kids at the Bible camp. They can get through that. That's dramatic. I remember I, when I saw my first dead animal. That's why on, when I'm driving with my kids, I always tell them that any animal that's been hit on the side of the road, they're just sleeping. But the problem is, as my kids have aged, they're realizing that I was lying to them. Usually they're also fighting, but they're fighting with a car. Yeah. Never win that one. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be tackling 10 ways to prevent money from ruining your marriage. Matt Bell will be with us. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Well, the holiday season is a great time to reconnect with family and friends, but it can also be a stressful one, especially for married couples. It's no secret that fighting about money puts a huge strain on a relationship. In fact, money issues are so troublesome uh, that the people that that they're now cited as the number one reason for people um, as they go into marriage counseling. That's the number one topic they have issues with money. The holiday season doesn't help with those stresses, right? Because we're starting to... uh, you got to buy stuff. We all have different expectations. We maybe haven't planned with a budget. So here to help us today is Matt Bell. He's a full-time personal finance writer and speaker and uh, is also serving as managing editor at SoundMind Investing while speaking also at, uh, you know, doing public speaking at churches, universities all all over the country. And we're honored to have him today to talk about an article he wrote, 10 Ways to Prevent Money from Ruining Your Marriage. Matt Bell, thank you so much for being with us. It's great to be with you, Matt. So money, I mean, it seems like the problem can't be we all have too much money, right? So <laughs> the problem must be we just don't know how to talk about the money. Is that it? You know, there's a lot um, going on there. I mean, especially, you know, money's troubling enough for a lot of us, uh, regardless of whether we're married or right, not. Right, if you're but by yourself, get, yeah. Yeah. But once you get married, now you've got this clash of, of different upbringings and different expectations and different habits and practices and different temperaments. And so it's just this minefield that, that many couples find it difficult to navigate. Is it um, – I guess this is an age-old issue, right? This has been going on forever, and it must be because this, is, this isn't just the economy. I'm sure it's worse during bad economic times. 
But it also gets back to some very deep-rooted issues of power, right, of control. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting that, you know, people say that opposites attract, but actually the research says that, that on many dimensions, um, op- people that, that tend to be attracted to a marriage partner that is very similar to them on many dimensions, but money is not one of them. Money tends to be a topic that people tend to differ on. They tend to be attracted, like spenders tend to be attracted to savers and vice versa, and that's kind of cute and fun when you're engaged or just dating, but then you get married, and it's maybe not so cute anymore. <laughs> yeah, now. Now it's just annoying. Now you, it's interesting because you started your career as a radio journalist. How did you, how did you eventually get to this topic? It was through the School of Hard Knocks. I mean, it started out uh, great. I, I got an inheritance, unexpected inheritance from an uncle when I was in my 20s. I was working in radio, as you mentioned, and, uh, and I enjoyed that, that career. But I thought, wow, this is an opportunity to do anything. And, I mean, it was 60 grand, which, you know, let's put it in context. But still, it seemed like all the money in the world to mm. me. And so, long story short, I created my dream job. I loved to golf and travel, so I created a newsletter for golfers who travel. And uh, two years later, I was twenty grand in debt. So, uh, very humbling, very embarrassing to wake up to the the fact that I had squandered this amazing opportunity. But it was life changing. It really got me in the game and got me focused and got me interested in figuring out the whole financial thing. And it's become my life's work. Mm, that's powerful because. And you also you you went about solving your own problem. That's what one of the things I see with a lot of experts that we interview. They just had to figure out their own answers and why not research it and then share it. Yeah, there's nothing like having been there and done that. I mean, I feel like it adds some credibility when I get up in front of people and I talk about the fact that I've I once had twenty thousand dollars of credit card debt and that was depressing. Literally, it was humbling. It was difficult. It, it took me four and a half years to pay it all all off and. A lot of people have debt, so I can relate. I know what that feels like, and I know the path of how to get out and stay out. You wrote a book titled uh, uh, Money and Marriage. Is When you think about it as far as you know, having kind of gone through it and, and survived it, for the hopeless person out there that's thinking, ugh, I'm done, I'm sick and tired of having these fights about it, is, can you learn this and can you eventually you know, create a healthy relationship on money? Absolutely. I mean, it, it starts with being teachable, and, and, and that's a difficult place sometimes. People sometimes have uh, a difficult financial situation, but they want the easy way out. They want the, the quick path. And, and, you know, unfortunately, it's probably not going to be a quick path out. You know, for me, like I said, it took me four and a half years. And, and during that time, that was difficult. I wanted to get out of debt faster. But looking back, I, I, it took that much time to not only change some financial habits and practices, but to change my mindset around money, the way I thought about money, some of the attitudes and, and beliefs I had about money. And that's become a path that has, has had traction. It, is, it has stayed present in my life. And so for sure, someone who's struggling, someone who's listening to this that's, that's under a lot of debt or other types of financial stress – Absolutely. And it starts with that commitment. And then there are a lot of resources and a lot of sources of encouragement out there and available to you. Mm. Mm. Talk about it. Let's get into some of the 10 ways. Your article was in Forbes magazine, if I recall, 10 ways to prevent money from ruining your marriage. Uh, The first one, don't set yourself up for disaster. I guess that's not getting into debt quickly. What is that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times uh, couples, you know, the, the, your wedding day is a big day. You know, I get that. that that's true for, 
you know that's just a fact um but but so many couples do themselves long term damage by throwing the elaborate wedding the wedding they can't really afford the average cost of a wedding today is over twenty five grand and that's just the average mm. it gets much higher than that in in some of the bigger cities and so make that commitment from the beginning that hey, we can have a nice wedding, but we're not going to go into debt for this let's make it a memorable day, but let's not have the memory be that for the next five years we have this huge <laughs> bill that we have to pay that's so true. They, I mean, you got to – if you all of a sudden burden yourself with debt, you're starting out in a hole. Yeah, and, and debt is like a cancer in marriage. I mean, there's a lot of research out there, and I think it's intuitive for anybody like myself who's been there and done that with debt. Um, it's destructive in your relationship with the person you're going to spend your life with. It, it creates stress. It creates sometimes the blame game. So don't get your marriage off to the wrong start by, by starting out with a bunch of debt. So true. Um, also, discuss your demons. A lot of times when we're getting married, we don't we don't want the demons to come out until you know we're well into the marriage. So, uh, how what are some of the demons we should be watching for? There are so many, and that's why in in the book I wrote about money and marriage that it starts with a whole bunch of questions that I encourage couples to talk through because there's so much from our backgrounds. You know, we're getting married later in life these days, and so. You know, the longer you wait, the, the more you have time to build up some of these habits and, and your, your upbringing, how your parents did the whole money thing. Did they fight about money? Were they stressed about money? Was there never enough money? Um, talk about uh, some of your early experiences. Like I said, I had this difficult experience with debts. So were there some memorable experiences in your own life or perhaps a, an ancestor's life that, that shaped your view of money? Start to just talk and be a student of each other and, and create that open environment where you can really talk, tell the truth about some of your experiences and some of your expectations around money. Mm. Again, I can just see, because I see so many clients and they come and we start talking and there were even signs before the marriage of these problems, but we're so enamored with each other. We just, we give each other the benefit of the doubt so much, but down the road, you know, the negativity seeps in and, and we we might even make up demons that don't exist. And we certainly uh, avoid certain discussions too early in the relationship. We got to find a way to talk about the real issues. That's right. And, and we've got to create a way, and like I said, that safe environment where the other person can truly feel okay about opening up about some things, because otherwise it will eventually come to, to the surface, and, and sometimes in some really troubling ways you know, after, after you're down the road a little bit. Um, I tell a story in the book. It may sound kind of, you know, not like such a big deal, but when we got ma- when we were engaged, um, and that's when we had our first argument. My wife Jude and I. So we never really fought about things while we were dating, but then we got engaged, and it was in registering for gifts. As crazy as that sounds, <laughs> that we realized we had such a big difference in how we we viewed things like design. So. I liked modern design. She liked more traditional, more intricate, you know, patterns and things. And so as we started to choose gifts that other people were going to spend their money on, it wasn't even our money, um, we, we actually had a pretty serious disagreement about that uh, because I started to realize that everything down the road that we're going to purchase from now on, I may have to accept something that I don't really like. And so it was ultimately helpful to start moving toward each other on that but there are things like that that you don't even realize what's lurking underneath until you start talking about it. It's so, it's so true. Um, and, I mean, these are – everybody has a different mindset about not just even their art and what they – you know, you can buy a pair of 
$600 shoes. Hello? Um, no, you can't. So we fight about shoes, but, the, but there's deeper issues going on. One of your points is to understand your partner's money mindset, how they think and see money. Talk about some things we can do. What can we do to understand how they think about money? Yeah, one of the most powerful things, I think, is to understand each other's temperament. This has been huge for me. And so, you know, there's different ways to classify temperaments and and kind of define temperaments. But the the longest-running one dates all the way back to Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, where he defined the the choleric, the sanguine, the phlegmatic, and the – yes, I always forget them when I start rattling them off – and the melancholy. (laughs) And and so – if you start to understand that these are how these are elements of how you're designed this isn't going to change for you and so if you devote your life to changing your spouse on something like temperament it's going to be a difficult life they're not going to change and so but if you understand each other's temperament their natural wirings yours and theirs now you can start to see the implications for money so, for example, a sanguine. A sanguine is a very outgoing, life of the party, really enjoyable sort of person to be with. You, you know, everybody loves sanguines. But when it comes to using a budget, sanguines have no time for that, no patience for that. So if you're going to devote your life to getting your sanguine spouse to love the budget, give up on it. It's not yeah. going to happen. You know, just get them to drop their receipts in the vicinity of your computer where you be the one to enter the information into your budget. Um, so there's some information in the book on how to understand your own temperament and your spouse's temperament. But, man, it is so revealing when you really get that and you start to see the financial implications of that and can begin to orient how you're going to manage money together around each other's strengths instead of trying to change a weakness. That is such a valuable insight um, because you can be a, a strong organizer, um, but – Fine. Instead of complaining about it, hating it, and keep assuming they're going to change, just be the one that does what you want to do. Just do it. Like, I mean, I guess that's easier said than done, except you can fight the sanguine, as you're saying, um, or you can understand them and do yeah. what you can to include them in your method. That's right. And and it takes some time. But if you're really thoughtful about this, and I think that's one of the most enjoyable aspects of marriage. My wife and I have been married for 17 years now. You know, be a be a lifelong student of your spouse. That's a that's a fun thing to do, a great approach to it. And you'll you'll uncover new aspects to their personality over time and you'll learn to work through these things. But but temperament is so helpful. So you know, the phlegmatic. So my wife's primary temperament type is, is melancholy or secondary is phlegmatic. We usually have a primary and a secondary. The phlegmatic is kind of slow and steady. So they like to take their time with things. In the restaurant, they want to see all the options. And when they're going to research a purchase, they want to really get the details. A little bit harder time pulling the trigger, making the decision. And so I'm thankful that some of my wiring, I'm primarily choleric, secondary melancholy, so I, I can encourage her to make decisions maybe more quickly, but I can also force the issue, and that doesn't work so well. So we've had to learn to figure out how do these different temperaments work together over time. That's great. Uh, be a lifelong student of your spouse. It just it seems like a no-brainer. We'll take a break. We're speaking again with Matt Bell. If you go to the website, mattaboutmoney.com, um, great resource for you there. And we're talking about the 10 ways to prevent money from ruining your marriage. Stick with us, folks. We'll continue the discussion, helping you love stronger and staying financially solvent as well. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Money impacting your marriage, sinking it. Well, joining us on the phone, Matt Bell is here. Ten ways to prevent money from ruining your marriage. It was an article he wrote in Forbes magazine. If you go to mattaboutmoney.com, you can read uh, more of his insights there, um, as well as uh, check out some of his books and um, just speaking opportunities and everything that uh, that Matt is out there doing. Matt, thank you again so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. So continue uh, teaching us some of the principles. Uh, we You've already taught us don't set yourself up for disaster, discuss your demons, understand your partner's money mindset. What about, uh, you know, getting on the same page? Yeah, getting on the same page is, is really important, and that takes a number of different forms. I mean, one of the most important things is it's having common goals, and, and that is often not natural. We don't tend to naturally gravitate toward the same things. I mean, men and women in general tend to value different things. Uh, uh, so men tend to value electronic gear. Women tend to value travel, things like that. And, of course, you know, individuals are, are unique in these areas as well. So, you know, again, it comes back to conversation, and it, and it gets down to prioritizing things, and it gets down to, you know, leadership in the household. I think sometimes the, the best thing in a marriage is to be sacrificial toward your spouse. And so, you know, look, if they want to pursue a certain vacation this year, and that might prevent you from getting the, you know, kayak you wanted to buy, well, so be it. I mean, hopefully uh, we've got long lives to live, and so we can get the kayak next year. Um, hmm. So it's really about conversation and working together, and and you know, as, as it may not, this may not sound like the most appealing idea, perhaps to single people, but but you know, it's really about dying to self, and um, that really I, I have found I'm not perfect at it, certainly, but but I think that that's a great way to approach marriage, and and certainly when talking about these different financial goals that we all have, it's almost the perfect test, right? I mean, to make a marriage work, there has to be a level of selflessness, of sacrifice. And it, it just seems like many of us are surprised by the fact that that has to happen. Yeah, that's so right. I mean, I got married in my 30s, and I remember it was kind of like a light switch. I, I started thinking differently when I realized I was ready to be married. I, I wasn't ready before that. I was way too into doing my thing whenever I wanted to. And, and uh, you know, and, and that is okay for a time, you know, but, but when you're going to get married, now it's got to be perhaps you're excited about um, being with this other person and discovering what they're into and, and seeing if you can find some common ground. Mm. You, um, you, you bring up the phrase, you say, don't ignore the B word. And I'm assuming the B word is budget. Yeah, absolutely. People are terrified of doing a budget, or is it just they're, they, they don't know how? What is it? Uh, they hate the idea because of preconceived notions. I, I ask people in workshops, if a budget were a person, who would it be? And you know, people <laughs> typically say Scrooge or the Grinch, and one person even said the devil. You know, wow. budget yeah. gets a bad rap as a bad PR person or something. Um, but, but I think of a budget as really the single most powerful tool that people can use to manage money well. Um, people that use a budget describe it as freeing because now you have information. Now you know where your money's going, and you can be more intentional about how to use it um, toward some of your most important goals. And within the context of marriage, so we use an online budget tool that we also have our investment accounts tied into. Either one of us, at any moment, if we have Internet access, whether at home or you know, through our phone, we can pull up in, in very short order, how are we doing financially? How much have we spent on groceries this month so far compared to the amount that we intended to spend on groceries this month? And, and that's 
freeing. That's powerful because that enables you to not go in debt. That enables you to have the money for the fun stuff like vacations and, and other things like that. Hmm. And you, again, it's it becomes this pattern that can keep you on track, right? I mean, the the very f- fact that you have a system to keep you on track, it's, it's, it's the reason why most of us don't drive off on the dirt. Uh, when we're just you know going to grandma's house because there's a road there and we once we have the road there and the path there it's just even if you're not consciously paying attention you can stay on the path yeah it, it's accountability and people find that when they just start using a budget even if they don't quite get it right the first time and nobody gets it right the first time but if they just start using one they tend to start spending less because they know they're going to have to write it down or it's going to be captured electronically. And, and look, a budget is not about deprivation. It's, I don't even like the term frugal, actually. Mm. I, I, I like the phrase spending smart. And, and with a budget, you can spend smart. You can allocate the money toward the things that really matter. You can hopefully get together at a moment of low emotion and calmly talk through your priorities and your objectives and figure it out. You know, you've only got so much money coming in each month. How are we going to allocate that? You do that together. You agree on that together. And now you're tracking it and, and actually proactively managing it. It, it actually it, it works out really well. Hmm. One of the biggest things I've seen that is a sign that you're off target with your spouse is the minute you, ha- you have secrets and you're hiding yeah. stuff. You're, one of your rules is to stop keeping the secrets, create transparency. Yeah, and that's where a budget can really help. Um, there are a variety of uh, research studies out there on this topic. That they talk about financial infidelity. You know, something like 70% of married couples, uh, you know, one spouse believes it's okay to keep secrets um, uh, from the other person financially. And, and you know what? That's not helpful in a marriage. Mm. And so what I encourage couples to do is I say before marriage, full financial disclosure, and after marriage, complete financial transparency. So, like I said, we, either one of us can pull up our financial situation within a minute. We just have to log on to our, our budget, and we can see now there's transparency. So there isn't really an opportunity to be keeping secrets now. You've, you've built in a structure in your life that prevents you from keeping secrets. And what do you think about uh, merging accounts? I've seen a lot of couples that think, you know, I'll keep my money, you keep your money, and then that way we don't have to have these fights about money because we'll just always have our own money. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the roommate approach. Right. And that's not, not really the marriage approach. You know, the mar- marriage is really about oneness. And I'm all about looking at ways that we can arrange our use of money that fosters oneness in marriage. And so I, I advocate uh, joint accounts wherever possible. Some accounts you can't make a joint account, like an individual retirement account. It's an individual retirement account. But the accounts you can merge and have it be a joint account, like a checking account or a savings account, I encourage people to have those be joint accounts because, again, it fosters accountability, communication, and teamwork. Mm. You bring up in your article um, the need to give each other space, but you also use a term that I love, and this is these are kind of two of your points in one. Um, you call it cost per use. So when you're purchasing something, you you suggest we evaluate it using kind of a cost per use mentality. It's an interesting idea. It's not original to me, so I want to uh, acknowledge that. But but it's a it's a great concept. I really like it. It's the idea that you know again we talked about goals earlier, and so if your goal is to buy an expensive pair of shoes, well okay maybe we can make that happen. But let's th- maybe it's helpful to think about 
you know, how often are you going to use those? It'll be for a very fancy occasion, and so maybe over the next two years, maybe there are 10 of those occasions. So you divide the cost of those shoes by 10, and you get your cost per use versus, you know, maybe we want a, a better TV. We're tired of that uh, huge monster black and white thing that, you know, doesn't even work very well. And, you know, as a family, maybe we watch TV um, several times a week. And so you look at the cost of use of that and you say, actually, maybe that's a better investment of our resources because we're going to be using that more mm. frequently. And and then because it is, it's a, it's a way to that's how we usually justify not buying a boat. Right. Because <laughs> it's only four yeah. times a year and the neighbors are, you know, the neighbors never use their boat. Um, this, I guess, comes down to how we're going to treat each other, right? And one of your points um, is remember the golden rule. Yeah. I mean, treat each other as you, as you, you want to be treated yourself is a, is a great principle. Um, I even like, I've heard a number of people talking about the platinum rule, treat people how they want to be mm. treated. So that gets back to the temperament thing where you understand how they're wired up. And, and so maybe that takes it beyond how, what you might want. Now it's about thinking about what they might want. And, and that changes that dynamic there a little bit as well. Um, but there's, there's some great research out there about disagreements. And so people say, oh, I, we never fight about money. I actually don't like to hear that. that. That concerns me a little bit because I don't think it's very realistic. We're always going to have some clashes. And so I think the more interesting and, and more helpful way to think about it is how are we going to have disagreements? And um, one of the researchers whose work I really like is a guy named John Gottman. He's been studying marriages yeah. for decades now. And he talks about the fact that, that how you fight is really um, indicative of the health of the marriage. And so you want to make sure that you're, it's okay to complain about things. You can say, look, you know, we overspent in entertainment this month. Okay, that's a complaint. But don't make it a criticism. Don't make it personal. You know, how could you be so insensitive to spend so much money without you know, talking to me about that first? Well, now it's starting to get personal. That's not so good for a marriage. And, and a guideline that he offers I think is especially helpful is to say, listen especially for any words that sound contemptuous. So if you're really taking your, your spouse to task in such a way that, it, that it's contemptuous, you know, that, he says, is a real red flag that that marriage is in trouble. Now it's not a financial disagreement anymore. Now it's much deeper than that. So it's okay to complain, not, not so great to criticize, and definitely watch out for the use of, of contempt. Mm. And when you get to a point where, I guess, you... You're not making any ground. You're turning to contemptuousness. You're angry at each other. You can't get headway. You don't know how to make a budget. You suggest you call for reinforcements. I guess that could be financial reinforcements, but also therapists, coaches, whatever. Yeah, for sure. Life coaches, therapists, good friends. I mean, uh, you know, if, if the couple is a church-going couple, perhaps there's a small group at, at church that they could get involved in, and, and that can just foster some really healthy, um, perhaps modeling from other couples of, of a healthy marriage, but just really an atmosphere to be able to figure out the whole marriage thing out loud. Um, bringing in some outside um, unbiased sources can be really, really helpful. So true. And Honestly, a, a breath of fresh air, really. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, we appreciate you, Matt. Uh, Matt Bell's his name. Go to his website, mattaboutmoney.com. So focused, so dedicated to that one topic, and uh, but it really can open up your mind there. Um, he's done a ton of research and uh, has lived through it himself. 
Matt Bell is his name. We'll take a break. Come back. When we come back, we'll be talking about five reasons snow is the worst part of winter. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. You know, with uh, the crazy weather that we're receiving all over the country, for some it's tornadoes, uh, for some it's just high winds. But in our area, it was snow, and it negatively impacted one of our producers, Leanna Tan. Here are her five reasons snow is the worst part of winter. I'm looking out the window, and all I see is white. We've gotten our first good snowfall here in Utah this past week. And sure, it makes me think of Christmas and snowball fights and walking in a winter wonderland. But part of me just wants to hibernate till April. I believe the snow should visit at Christmas and then the sky should bless us with Hawaii weather the rest of the year. If you're an avid snow lover, let me explain. Here are five reasons snow is not my favorite part about winter. What? Slush on your pants. Maybe this was more of a problem in the 90s when I was in elementary school and bell-bottom pants were in style. But I always remember hating the feeling of walking through snow only to have the cuff of my jeans get wet. And then when I went inside, all the snow melted and the waterline on my cuff would rise to like the bottom of my calf. I hated the feeling of sitting with a quarter of my jeans wet the entire day at school. Jeans don't dry very fast. Two! Cold seats. It's always disappointing to run to your car for shelter from the frigid cold, only to be greeted with ice-cold seats. It's like there's no escape. Not to mention, you try to crank the heat to get some relief, only to be blasted with freezing cold air for the next few minutes. I can't do my hair. There's really no point. Whether I curl it or straighten it, the minute I walk outside, the snow will ruin it anyway. There's really only one hairstyle when it's snowing. Stringy, wet, and then slightly wavy. Or if not that, I'll just be stuck in the hat anyway. It's so easy to get lost. Winter wonderlands are magical, but they're also blinding, and snow manages to make everything look the same. It hides addresses, street signs, license plates... makes it nearly impossible to find a friend's house or your car in the parking lot. It makes you gain weight. At least in Utah, snowy weather also means dry, icy air, which makes it harder to breathe and means the streets are extremely slippery. And it takes away what little motivation I have to jog outside. But it's okay, everyone. We will survive. The good news is skinny jeans are in, which can be tucked into your boots. Siri can see addresses through snow even if we can't. And winter weather also means winter fashion, which means you can cover those extra pounds with all your winter layers. So we can't let this snow get us down. I guess we just have to fight the impulse to hibernate and keep dreaming of snow plows and sunblock to get us through these next few months. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. All the leaves are This is 
The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy stay home because you're well day. Which we are clearly, well, the two of you are clearly not celebrating. Yeah, we, we are well. We should not be here today. We should be at home, you know, taking a wellness day. You don't know how good you've got it, and you're not taking advantage. You actually are sick, Jeffrey, and, you know, you can't, you, you can't celebrate today with us. Even though you try to celebrate it another way by just having a sick day. Sicky! It's hard to be sick all the time. It's really weird. I normally get a lot of colds, but uh, so far we've dodged them. I think it's because I'm dodging people. Hmm. If you avoid enough people, you don't get any colds. Do you want to sit closer to me? Nope. But thanks for the invite. Hey, today we will be talking about five fundamentals of becoming an exemplary leader. We need better leaders. What's wrong with the one that that was just elected? Well, no, he's he's great. But we there's more leaders than just the presidency, right? You have to be a leader at home, you have to be a leader uh, you know, with your team. You have to be a leader, you're a leader at your home right now trying to fix all of the little things that you have to fix in a mm-hmm. brand new home. I am not an authority on broken things in the house. You know what? There's a, there's a weird thing that happens when you buy a new home. You cuz it's a very kind of it seems like a manly thing. You're taking care of your family. You just you just put them into a nice home. And the next thing you realize about 500 moments at a time is that you're just a loser cuz you can't even fix the fridge. I did put together the elliptical though. Did you? Did it come apart? <laughs> Well, we had to take it apart to to move it. Yeah. That's when you need to give yourself some wins, like put a a doorknob on a door. It's very simple to do, but when you do that, you're like, I just did that. Now you you move up to maybe fix the toilet that won't stop running or fix a faucet. There's certain things I can do. Yeah. There's certain things I just don't. We need a new disposal. I do not want to do that. you, You call somebody for that. But I I know how to do it. Uh, it's just, just there's so many little things you got to do right. And if you don't do it right, the next thing you know, you're flooding your house. Yeah. Then your wife is mad. Just call somebody. It's easier. I can unclog a sink. Yeah. Can you? I've done that. See. And it's all the wife's hair. It always is. And I they know, blame you. That's why I make my wife wear a hairnet everywhere she goes around the house. Keep all that hair on your head. Then at night, we just take it off and... Get all that hair out. The hair or the hairnet? Both. Okay. Good times. Luckily, she's not listening this morning. (laughs) We'd be getting a phone call right now. Um, So much to talk about, too, uh, when we get into leadership. Uh, We also are going to to give you uh, some crazy stories, including, by the way, um, the the story. And we have a brand new sponsor of the show, Diddy Dental. Yeah. A subsidiary, I guess, of P. Diddy, one of P. Diddy's companies, maybe. Franchise. It's a franchise. Yeah. So Dr. Diddy is not actually at this no. branch. Well, Dr. Diddy, I, I don't think Diddy is really a doctor of dentistry. 
Anyway, he's a doctor of incredible music. Is he a doctor like you're a doctor? No, I'm a real doctor. That that comment kind of implies that he's not a real doctor. Yeah, but that comes from the guy that is really into Marvel comics. Yeah, so they have Doctor Strange. He's a real doctor. Mm. He's a surgeon. Mm. Not anymore. Yeah. Well, he hurt his hands, but now he's a doctor of mystical arts. See? Point made. There you go. Um, all of that fun <laughs> straight ahead. Plus, our good friends from BYU Sports Nation will be checking in with them, seeing what's going to be on their show at the top of the hour. And a hero story of the day. Got a lot to get to. But first, Sadie Nielsen with the headline. Sadie, what uh, do we need to know around the rest of the country? The Somali refugee who carried out an attack at Ohio State University on Monday was a soldier of the Islamic State, according to the terrorist group's semi-official news agency. Abdul Razak Ali Atin drove a car into a group of people and then began cutting them with a knife before being shot and killed by a responding police officer. The attack came just two days after ISIS released a video urging supporters to carry out low-tech knife attacks. Authorities in North Dakota plan to block supplies from reaching pipeline protesters in order to force the demonstrators to leave the site, law enforcement officials said on Tuesday. For months, activists have been pro- have protested plans to build the Dakota Access Pipeline, a $3.8 billion project beneath a lake near the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. Authorities in Tennessee announced Tuesday that at least three people have died in wildfires that are raging around the Great Smoky Mountains and National Park. The, in the resort towns of Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge, dozens of homes and buildings have burned down and thousands of residents have been forced to evacuate. At the Dollywood theme park in Pigeon Forge, there is some damage to cabins, but the park is not burning. This is a fire for the history books, Gatlinburg Fire Chief Greg Miller said. The likes of this have never been seen here. At least 14 people have been hospitalized, including three with severe burns. And finally... Yes? In your goat... News. My pardon? You heard that right. My goat, goat go, my goat news? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> Just another category. Good. I didn't tab. know we, okay, that's great. Didn't know we had goat news. Um, a New Jersey woman, she found an unusual treatment for her rescue goat suffering from anxiety. <laughs> a rescue goat. <laughs> Dressing the small animal in a child's duck costume. Look it up. Oh, this Put poor goat. Rescue goat anxiety. You'll see him in a duck costume. Um, this lady who runs the Goats of Anarchy Rescue Group said a baby goat named the Polly. The Goats of Anarchy? Shh, listen. Nice. Like the name. Go ahead. A baby goat named Polly recently came to live with her, and she soon realized the goat displayed signs of severe anxiety. And she said the solution came in form of a child's duck costume, complete oh, with a hood boy. and a pair of flippers. She said, as soon as I put it on her, she instantly got calm. There's something about that duck costume that calms her. She goes into a little trance. She just closes her eyes and she's out. It's called humiliation. That's what that's called. Maybe. How do you come to that? We're like, I have a duck costume for a little kid Uh, and I have a goat. I think I'll put it on the goat. So imagine that. Here's what happens. She wanted to get it for Halloween. She thought it would make a cute Halloween photo. So, but as soon as she put the duck, or sorry, the goat in the duck costume, the goat liked it. No, it didn't. Yeah, it did. You can no. watch. You can watch the video. I am watching the video, and that goat <laughs> is not liking it. The goat thinks it it can eat it. I don't think he was eating. Hold on. It. The goat is walking around the house in like a teach in a onesie. Yeah, that's the other goat. Oh, um, I, I forgot know. his name. It starts with a P. But the other goat is also dressed in a t-shirt, and he really likes his t-shirt as well. 
Okay. So we're so worried about everyone's mental health that they need a mental health goat. But what about the goat's mental health? This is going to create a, a lot question. of issues. Great question. Oh, they oh. remember that George Clooney movie, The Men Who Stare at Goats. I didn't no. think I could watch a movie about men staring at goats for two hours. But you did. I made it. I did it. How was it? Uh, it was Oscar worthy. Okay. Aren't we all? No, apparently not. Really. I don't uh, – I, I get it. It's cute. If you just imagine the cutest little baby in a cute little goat or a cute little duck outfit with little duck feet, that's just cute as can be. Right. However. However. This is a goat. Oh, well. I feel bad for the goat. He's got a stiff little arms and legs with little gut or duck slippers on. Honestly, the goat looks – Ridiculous. He doesn't look happy? I hope he's not listening because he looks totally ridiculous. Doesn't look happy. Hmm. Uh, but the goat is in a onesie. You can see the onesie. I guess you got to probably diaper and you got to diaper your goat. Yeah. Well, that one, you're looking at a picture of the goat sitting in the child seat of a uh, grocery cart. Yeah. That's probably Asleep not correct. In the goat, in the duck outfit. Um, I remember fondly when I used to diaper my goat. But you put him in a bear costume. Yeah. I mean, I could see a bear costume, but a duck? <laughs> a road too far. Yeah, totally. Thank you, Sadie. Hmm. Hey, uh, what about this? Uh, technology's taking off. What about now you can just attend the funeral on your smartphone? A crematorium and cemetery in the U.K. is installing a camera so that mourners are unable to that are unable to physically attend the funeral will be able to pay their respects by watching it from their laptops, tablets or smartphones. That might be a neat idea. Like if you couldn't get away from the meeting, you could just, you know, tune in to the funeral service. I mean, it's how I want to go to funerals. Since I don't want to go to funerals. Yeah. I'll just check in on the live stream. Cemetery owners say the webcasting facility is a service that we hope will be of help to families and friends who are unable to attend a funeral, perhaps because they live too far away. That's true. I mean, what if you couldn't make the flight? You couldn't pay the money? <laughs> Look at Uncle George. They got his hair just right. All right, moving on. Because you just check in for like five minutes and then turn it off. But where does this end? But we never actually... Like when they're dressing the body, yeah. when they're... They could live stream the entire event. You yeah. can like, you could add more money, you can pay more money to get the full package from beginning to end. The embalming, everything. The internment. Do phone condolences carry much clout with those that are grieving? It's half Loved a condolence. If it's, it's half of the value of a full condolence. <laughs> A call really? A, you, if you, you place in a that much value on it, it's half. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, if it's, if all you do is just make a comment on the web, like the the obituary <laughs> website, then that's a quarter of the value. <laughs> in the comment section, it's showing only... up, being there for the two three day event, bringing a casserole, full value. Nice. Just as long as you don't give it a thumbs up, a like on Facebook. Yeah. I you gotta like do like Uncle the weeping. Got to do the weeping. That's true. Or the thumbs down. Yeah, sad face. Mm. Angry. This is great music, though. Right. To play 
for the uh, grieving through a smartphone. Wouldn't you story. want a, a song like this playing at your funeral? I have nine songs I've picked for my funeral already. You've already got them picked. Every out. time I and uh, one of them's Nickelback, by the way. That's like an entire album right there. Yeah. Two more songs and you've got an album. I know. He's got the theme to Karate Kid too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what that sounds like. I will survive. Oh, I will survive. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, that song by Whitney Houston that she always sings that brings everyone to tears. The national anthem? No, the other one. Let's play the national anthem the theme at your from the funeral. Bodyguard, right? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Mm-hmm. The song that's not hers. And then I have two songs on bagpipes. The theme from Ghost. You like that? Song? Uh, I love the bagpipes. <laughs> You've got Sweet Child of Mine. Sweet Child of Mine will be there on bagpipe. Okay. And then that's a banjo like, medley. That's like. That's all nine of them right there. There you go. It's going to be crazy. It's a great feeling. And a rendition of Amazing Grace. By a goat. And a By Weird Al Yankovic. Duck costume. Mm. <laughs> and then, yeah, I want to be dressed in a duck costume like our poor goat. Got your goat. <laughs> yes, you did. Um, okay, what other news do we need to worry about, Sarah? Emma Moreno celebrated her birthday on Tuesday. She was born November 29th of 1899. Man. She's 117 years old. She's the last person from... The 19th century. Yeah. Amazing. Is She's believed to be the only known person. So there could be somebody else out there. Yeah, they're in a treehouse somewhere. Her longevity is thanks to her being single and getting early to bed, she says. Really? That's a good idea. She she left her husband in 1938, and one of her kids died in infancy. So she's been alone. She left her husband in 1938. Yeah. So it's our spouses that... Make us die faster. Yeah, so that that part might be questionable because there's research yeah. that may lead us a different direction right. there. But her diet can, has consisted of two eggs a day, and that's it. Well, and cookies. What kind of cookies? She doesn't say. That's the worst part of the story is they don't report on the type of cookies. Oh, well, how are we going to know how long to live? I don't know. It says, but I, it says she does not eat too much because she has no teeth. Well, of course. She's eating two eggs, one raw and one cooked every day since she was 20, and she avoids eating meat. I thought you could get like salmonella from salmonella from yeah, you could, but no, raw you, egg. Life's short. Would you want to live that long <laughs> if you couldn't eat meat? Mm. It, mm. If I could eat cookies all day, sure, I might. That's that's why you need to know which kind of cookies. Exactly, because you're going to spend quite a bit of time eating. Cookies. We need to send one of our reporters to meet with this lady. I think they're Lorna Dune. <gasps> I love Lorna Dunes. That's and that those just dissolve in your mouth. Two quick fast food stories. Yes. McDonald's, mm-hmm. they are testing the use of fresh, never frozen beef for its quarter pounder hamburgers. Well, of course. I thought they always were. No. That. The fast food giant says the tests are being carried out in 75 of its restaurants in the Tulsa, Oklahoma area. So if you want a fresh quarter pounder. Go to Tulsa. You'll know what real fresh The rest like. of the country is something prepared somewhere else and shipped in frozen. They're letting their secret out. They said they've made significant enhancements to its food as of late. I don't like a hamburger that doesn't have freezer burn. <laughs> also, in, their, in McDonald's is testing new battered deep fried cheese curds in Milwaukee. Oh, that sounds good. So the cheese head state. Mm-hmm. They really dig their cheese curds. So oh, that's yeah. why they're testing them there. They're not sure if they're going to go nationwide. Come on. But they, Come may, on. they may go Wisconsin-wide. So, so we never get any good tests like that in the Inner Mountain area. Cheese curds. Oh, well. 
What are you, you going to do? Hey, uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we will be talking about leadership and uh, with the author of the book, Learning Leadership, The Five Fundamentals of Becoming an Exemplary Leader, Jim Kuzis will be joining us. Also, by the way, as we go to break, let's uh, let's go to uh, our new sponsor, Diddy Dental. Ron Brokaw is here to tell us about him. It's Ron Brokaw here to tell you about Diddy Dental. You know, when I was thinking about getting my first set of grills, I went to one of my homies and asked him which dentist had the best selection and the best prices. My number one homie said, hey, why don't you head on over to Dr. Diddy for reals? He got what you need. Well, I took his advice and I've got to say I couldn't be happier with my experience. Dr. Diddy's office was very chill. He made me feel like I was hanging at my own crib. And Dr. Diddy has hired an all-star staff that really cares, including doctors Funky Fresh, Bubba Gum, and Harvey Rosenthal. So whether this is your first or 51st set of grills, do yourself a favor and go to Diddy Dental. And be sure to tell them that Mixmaster Ronnie sent you, and Dr. Diddy will hook you up with a killer dizzyl. We out. Whether you are on the PTA, you coach a Little League soccer team, or you're the CEO, a parent, whatever position you've got, the world needs better leaders. And it can seem daunting when the label, uh, you know, when you label it, hey, you've got to have a leader, you got to be a leader. But the reality is uh, there's some there's some powerful principles, skills, tools that each of us could learn to become a better leader. Santa Clara University's Executive Fellow of Leadership, Jim Kuzis, says leadership is a set of abilities. And like any other skill set, it can be learned and improved. He joins us today from California to discuss his new book, Learning Leadership, and to teach us about the five fundamentals of becoming an exemplary leader. Jim, thank you so much for being with us today. It is my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation to be part of your show, Matt. You bet. This is, uh, I mean, leadership, it's everywhere, right? We, you don't have to just be the CEO of a company to be the leader. What, I guess, constitutes or defines being a leader? Well, Matt, you know, we asked uh, individuals of all ages who their number one leader role model is. And not surprisingly, nearly half, 46% of those who are 30 and over, and 40% who are under 30, said a family member. Hmm. Um, usually a mother or a father, but it could have also been an uncle or a grandparent or even a brother or a sister, are the people that, that we most look up to for leadership, we most learn leadership from, and that's followed if you're still in school by a teacher or a coach. And then a, if you're still uh, under 30 years old, it's a community leader. So the majority of our leaders, in fact, 77%, are those who are not in a formal, quote, leadership role with a title called manager or chief executive officer or president, but in fact, uh, somebody who is closest to us. So I always ask people, <laughs> uh, are you a family member? And how many family members do we have in the room? How many family members do we have listening? And that would be 100% of us. And so to someone, you may be there. Leader role model, Matt. That's I mean, it's huge because 
it's uh, we we lead anything we lead everything everything um has the opportunity to to be maximized to be uh people are, are to be involved and to enroll others into the process what are some of the principles you've learned in um and that you've put together in the book about uh learning leadership what are some things we should be paying attention to well when we my co-author, Barry Poser and I have been writing about leadership now for uh, nearly 40 years. Uh, and we have been doing academic research on the topic for over that period of time. And we have we first examined the practices of exemplary leadership, uh, which was published in our book, The Leadership Challenge. And we talked about what leaders do to make extraordinary things happen. Well, along the way, of course, Barry and I being at uh, university initially and then uh, working with executives in executive programs and uh, individuals in nonprofits and corporations to help them develop themselves as leaders, we asked ourselves the question, well, what, is the, what, what do you do to create the context in which leaders can grow and develop uh, most effectively? Uh, and we found that there are five fundamentals that enable that to happen uh, the first of those is you have to believe you can learn to lead. If you don't believe you can learn to lead, then it's very difficult for you to engage in learning activities because you don't think, well, it's born. It's not something that's made, so I can't learn to lead. Uh, so you have to believe you can. You also have to have goals and objectives. You have to have aspirations to become the best. And that forces you then to challenge yourself, to stretch beyond what you're currently doing and engage in activities that help you to grow and develop. But you can't do it alone. You have to engage support of other people. And the research is very clear that people who have high-quality connections uh, are, are better learners and uh, also finally have to practice deliberately. You have to engage in intensive, designed learning experiences that enable you to grow and learn over a lifetime. So there are five, those five fundamentals. Believe you can, aspire to excel, challenge yourself, engage support and practice deliberately. It's really, uh, it sounds like work. I mean, <laughs> nobody told us, Jim, this would take work. Yeah, and we've had this belief, Matt, over the years that leadership is one of those things that's naturally born yeah. to people and you either have it or you don't. And so we, we have become uh, rather uh, lazy, if you will, about engaging in formal learning activities. In fact, a colleague of ours, Jack Zenger, whom uh, so, some of your listeners may know, yeah. uh, has, has written extensively about this. And he says that uh, in his research, he finds that the average manager in his uh, training and development programs in kind corporations takes their first formal leadership development course at age 43 years old, 42 mm -hmm. years old. Uh, that's about 10 years after they uh, start supervising someone. And... <laughs> it's amazing we allow people to manage and supervise other people with no training. We wouldn't ever do that. Would you, would you go to a physician who was practicing 10 years before they <laughs> went to school to learn right, no. medicine? Uh, no, we wouldn't. Or a lawyer or an accountant, we wouldn't do that. But yet we uh, allow those people to manage and supervise others with no formal training. And so we have to understand that leadership is a set of skills and abilities. It is a set of practices and behaviors, and that those behaviors can be learned. You know, in our research, Matt, we found that 
the percentage of people who demonstrate no leadership ability whatsoever is very small. What would you guess? What would you, if you had to make a guess? That have like no, they, 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 they demonstrate no leadership skill. Um, I would say uh, 20%. That number, according to our research, is 0.00013%. So everybody has some trait of leadership. Everybody has some ability, 99.99987%. That's the statistic we came up with when we actually looked at uh, scores that people got from observers, not just from themselves, but from observers on leadership assessments and found that there's almost no one who has zero, no, not a capability to, uh, to become a, and demonstrate more leadership. So we say you're already leading, just not frequently enough. Right. So while there, there, most of us have the, uh, have the ability to lead, we don't demonstrate those behaviors frequently enough. We're inhibited from doing that from the myth that it's born, from the, uh, what people talk about is as, as either you have the talent or you don't, or the, or the just as you said, the recognition that it takes work. It's a lot of work to well, become and, exemplary at anything. And if I believe that it's just a trait I have or I don't have, then that would just excuse me. Well, yeah, I'm not the leader. I'm not the leader type. But you're saying everybody's the type. You just would have to put your head down and and do the learning. Believe and, and I guess too believe in yourself. Believe you are a leader. And it seems like if you live long enough, you're you will be thrown into a situation where leadership is necessary. Yes, as we say, if you're a family member, somebody around you may be looking to you for leadership. And so the question we should be asking ourselves is. Uh, don't I have a responsibility to those individuals who look to me for leadership to be the best I can be? And so if I'm a parent and I'm a role model for my kids of leading, don't I have a responsibility to my kids to be the best I can be? If I'm a teacher or a coach and I'm in a classroom or on an athletic field or on an athletic court and I am uh, uh, seen by the players as a leader, don't I have a responsibility to be the best I can be? And so it's that it, those are the kinds of questions that exemplary leaders ask themselves. Do you it, – it doesn't seem like uh, we have as much passion anymore about um, – I don't know. Because to be a leader, you'd almost have to be engaged in a passionate uh, activity. Otherwise, you just kind of look like, well, if I have to lead, now it's just more work. It, does passion have anything to do with leadership? It absolutely does, Matt. If, when we were asking people in, in a different research project on exemplary leadership practices, not learning but practicing leadership, uh, what it is they look for and admire in a leader, one of the four most sought-after qualities of a leader was someone who was inspiring, mm. upbeat, energetic, passionate, as you say. So it is something people look for, the majority of people look for. And uh, it's something that also can be developed. Uh, we can learn to be more passionate, but it does start, as, uh, as you imply, with, the, with individuals having something meaningful in their lives that they aspire to achieve. Uh, if, if, the, if we don't have some kind of set of values and beliefs that are important to us and a vision of the future, to which we aspire, it's very difficult to 
to convey that passion and enthusiasm because we don't we don't have it. Uh, you can't fake it in the long term. People will, will know that you're trying to act the part rather than be the part. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I guess that's that's a key part of leading is. Yeah, you've got to convey the trust, and if they sense fakery, they're going to be like, mm, don't follow that lead. Jim, let's take a break, uh, come back, continue the discussion more with Jim Cousas, uh Learning Leadership, The Five Fundamentals of Becoming an Exemplary Leader. You can go to his website, leadershipchallenge.com, and we'll continue the discussion on leadership in just a minute. Friends of the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Jim Kuzes, and he is uh, the author, co-author of uh, the book Leader, Learning Leadership, The Five Fundamentals of Becoming an Exemplary Leader. He wrote the book with Barry Z. Posner and is um, on the line with us talking to us about the power of learning leadership. Uh, we thank you so much again, Jim, for being with us. My pleasure, Matt. Thank you for the invitation. You bet. It's learning, really. It's it's two really powerful, I think, concepts, right? Leadership is one set of, of skills and tools, but then learning leadership. And it's we live in a day and age when learning is more and more available, more and more, it seems like, at our disposal. Do we? How do we engage in the learning side of leadership? The first back to that first fundamental we talked about, uh, and it's really an inner exploration of your own attitudes about learning and development. Carol Dweck at Stanford University, who has done some extraordinary work on on this topic of of learning, finds there are two mindsets that people have when they approach learning. One is, it's we we have what she calls a fixed mindset, that is you either have it or you don't. So whether it's about math or whether it's about uh, chemistry or whether it's about leadership, you have an attitude that you 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 only capable of doing so much, and the rest of it is up to your natural born talent. Uh, another mindset is one that's that's a growth mindset that says, regardless of how much I know now, uh, and I might be born with, I can always learn and develop more. Those with a fixed mindset don't profit. Uh, from learning experiences to the extent that those with a growth mindset do. So the first one is to examine our mindset. Do I believe leadership can be learned, or do I think it's fixed? It's something that you either have or you don't. You have to challenge that assumption. Our research, as we were talking about earlier, shows that you have to uh, believe in yourself and believe that you can in order to learn. And and research that my co-author Barry Poser and I did with Lillis Brown found that those individuals who engage more frequently in learning activities related to leadership are more likely to be better leaders. Now, this seems like common sense, and yet if you have a fixed mindset, you're not going to engage in those learning activities because you don't believe you can learn. Right. And so you, <laughs> you, 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 the, the first barrier we all have to get across is this notion that leadership is born and you either have it or you don't. 
So we have, we have a little phrase that, that comes from Carol's research that we like people to use at the end of every sentence. Well, I'm not very good at inspiring other people. Add the single word yet at hmm. the end. I'm not very good at inspiring people yet. There you go. I'm not very good at, uh, at envisioning the future yet. I'm not very good at um, uh, collaborating with others yet. And so just by playing that little mental trick with yourself, you, you begin to understand that there is opportunity out there that you're missing and that you, can, you should engage in. So that's the first. Yeah, the that's actually – and that seems like a really important lesson to teach your children, your families about, you know, there's probably very few things that are fixed um, as far as, you know, mindsets. And, and most of our life could just be about growth. Leadership is definitely one we could grow into and figure out. One of the things I'm also sensing is we, we almost need a feedback loop to, to let us know where we are in the process of learning leadership. Um, and it's, a lot of us are afraid of getting that feedback. Uh, yes, it, it, it's, it's very true. One of my mentors is uh, was uh, a wonderful gentleman, John Gardner, who was... Oh, yeah. Uh, John, John, Multiple intelligences, John you know, Gardner? Well, a different John okay. Gardner, yeah. actually, but, but uh, equally bright person. Uh, John was uh, at Stanford University, uh, passed away a few years ago, but he served five different presidents of the United States as an advisor. He was founder of Common Cause mm. and uh, had the great uh, honor and pleasure of, of, of being able to work uh, with, with him and... Uh, he used to say, pity the leader caught between unloving critics and uncritical lovers. Uh, <laughs> Love that That's phrase. a great phrase. Yeah, so we have, we have people, Matt, who are always critical of us and never say anything nice about us. Of course, we're going to ignore those people, no matter how, how accurate their feedback might be. If, we're, if they're only negative, we're, we're going to ignore them. Yeah. Uh, and... And on the other hand, if we have people who are sycophants and just saying all nice things about us, perhaps to ingratiate themselves with us or just because they, they like to flatter others, they're not going to help us grow either because we, we say to ourselves, I can't be that good. I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I know I've got some faults. What we need, John says, are loving critics, people who say, I really care deeply about you and I need to give you some tough feedback. And it's listening to that feedback that uh, many people struggle with. Uh, many people have a hard time. But uh, if we have somebody who's a loving critic, it's a lot easier to be open to that feedback. Which, again, it seems like being a loving critic is a leadership role. It absolutely is. And learning that skill, how to give feedback to other people in such a way that they can hear it because they know that the person is giving that feedback to us because they care about it. And giving in such a way that we can do something with it, make it behavioral and descriptive, so that I know I can change that particular uh, that particular behavior that I'm engaging in uh, that might be detrimental to my success. You bet. What uh, as we wrap up, Jim? What would you say is the one thing I always like to find out? The one thing I can do today, this minute, this moment, to go take on the role of leadership in my life. Well, I think perhaps the most important thing we can all do, and particularly leaders, is to, whenever we have an encounter with someone, a conversation with someone, whether it's one person or a group of people, and we're wanting to to help those people to grow and develop as leaders or as individuals or as as people that we work with, uh, 
is to stop and pause and say, what can I do in this moment, with this interaction with this person, to help them feel that after uh, this conversation, they are more capable of doing their best than when we started this interaction. So what can I do in this interaction with someone else to make them feel more powerful, more efficacious, and more capable? If we just paused and asked ourselves that question in every interaction, not only would we be better leaders, we'd be better human beings. Mm. And imagine the peace and the people around us, the power that that would bring, and the belief in themselves, which as you were just mentioning, the first core principle of you know, learning leadership. Powerful stuff, folks. Go check out Jim's uh, site and, and, and learn. Learn about this. Go look up leadershipchallenge.com. Pick, up, pick it up. Pick up the game. Pick up the opportunity to step up to the life you've been given and the life uh, that you can bless by, by being a better leader. Jim Cousas is his name again and the name of the book, Learning Leadership, The Five Fundamentals of Becoming an Exemplary Leader. Go to leadershipchallenge.com. We'll take a break. Come back with two leaders from BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. Find out what's going to be up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, what a great song. Mm. We will uh, shoot it now down to our good friends, Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation. Their show is at the top of the hour. I know they're just getting ready right now, probably just uh, putting on their uh, muscle tees. Uh, guys, how are you there? Yeah, and uh, whenever we talk to you, we're always ready. Like, we could do the show... Are you, you're, right you're ready now. to go. So there's no, just, no, just so you know, there's no prep required. You say that, but every once way. in a while I hear Spencer opening, unzipping his makeup bag. Okay, I guess I'll just speak for myself. But <laughs> Spencer is almost always ready. You're usually eating a granola bar, I think. There's no food or drink allowed in this studio. studio. So and That doesn't mean we don't uh, eat in here. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. I know all about you, fellas. Okay, question number one. Are you ready? Ready. Do you think BYU should play Utah State in basketball tonight, considering Utah State always injures people? Not in basketball, just football. And it's not people, it's a person. It's one person. Mm-hmm. Do you think Taysom will be going to the game tonight? No. I think he should stay out of the stadium. He should stay out of the arena, the stadium, off campus. I don't. Okay. Well, you know him better involved, than I do. man. He's a senior, he's a captain. He's got to be there. He'll be around the football team for sure. I just think he has very little interest in what happens between BYU and Utah State in basketball. Yeah. I hope that he um, can one-arm taking out a a flag at the points table. Oh, that would be neat. Mm. I don't that know. That sweet. It's hard with one arm. Not for the him. Maybe they'll have him. to get a harness or something for him. Not for him. Not for him because he's ripped. He's, he's the strongest BYU quarterback ever. He reminds me of me as a child, as a Young man, as a child, as a child? so like mm-hmm. when yeah. he was a child and you now. No, when I was like a child, the same strength. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no, when I was a child and he, yeah, you get it. <laughs> hey, um, don't let Jerem come at you with that that way, Matt. Jer- does Jerem do this to you all the time? Does he put words in your it. mouth and then he, he? No, no, not words in the mouth. Drops just, the mic. Very good. 
He's very good. He's very quick I don't want to damage feet. our equipment. Plus, our mics are kind of your, uh, your mics are huge, hung in the huge. Area. Hey, um, I got another question. This is very sports oriented. Uh, BYU went eight and four, right? Mm-hmm. And this Kalani didn't recruit these guys, nope. right? So, well, some of them for like five weeks. Oh yeah, and he probably recruited them at the U, and he recruited them at other places. Yeah, he recruited Taysom Hill back to BYU. Did he? There you go. Yeah, yeah he did. <laughs> he recruited Ty Emmer back to BYU. Okay, so what? So that I mean, this they had a great year, all things considering. Oh, I I think it was definitely Solid. a success, and and Vegas validates that. Um, about ten minutes ago, they have BYU in the top their top twenty five rankings. They do their own rankings, really, just to juxtapose the rankings from last night from the College Football Playoff Committee. They have BYU in number twenty four. That's great. But Vegas doesn't know anything. What does Vegas Maddie? know? I know they're not they're not valued. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. It's validating. Mm-hmm. Right? That's good. Plus, you know, if you're betting in Vegas. Who does that? None of us do that. Not encouraging such, no. such action but or discouraging it. It's uh, it's America, you know. It is what um, it is. But yeah, it's interesting. Top twenty five, right? Eight eight and four, tough schedule, new offense and defense, new head coach. Hey, I'll take it, man. I I predicted seven at the beginning of the year. Spencer predicted nine, so it landed in the middle. See, that's, that's why you that's guys are the perfect team. <laughs> because if you always shoot it right, you know, right down the middle. Well. You're, you're, you're both always a little off. We don't bowl as well as we speak. Let's just say that. Hey, did you just get the, did you just get the note about the company party? There's going to be bowling. It's been out there for a while. There's going to be bowling at the company party. That's exciting. You mm-hmm. ready to go down, Matt? Yeah, Do totally. you want to compete? But I got to, yeah. I, I, if I stretch out, I'll be fine. Maybe we should yeah. bet on that. I always, I always pull a yeah. hammy. Let's do that. Oh, really? You guys? Yeah. I'm, I might not be there. Hold. Well, why? I might be on my way to San Diego. Oh, I know what you're doing. I'm driving with the fam. No, you are going to be dressing up as Santa, and then you're going to show up. I knew it! I might be at Rogue One. Who knows? <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't okay. have tickets yet, so probably not. Well, you, I'm sure you're getting in line. You and Terry here love oh, yeah. getting in line. Terry for... knows what's up. Mm-hmm. Um, anything you guys going to have on the show? You're still doing the show, right, tonight, today? Always. Oh, yeah. Okay. Always and forever. <laughs> What uh, what's what's up on the show today? Let's see. Uh, how about it's as you mentioned, Matt? Game day between BYU and Utah State. Sort of a rivalry week for mm. the Aggies and the Cougars. They'll play on an NBA floor tonight. Energy Solutions Arena. You can watch that on BYU TV nine Eastern. Listen on BYU Radio right here. Same time. We also have. The always entertaining and current all-time leading rusher, Jamal Williams, on the show in studio. That's great. That's big league. And we're paying off a bet today. What? So we we made a bet with uh, Adam Amin of ESPN, who went to Valparaiso. Uh And if Valparaiso beat BYU, we would wear, and vice versa, uh, Valpo shirts. And he would have to wear a BYU Sports Nation shirt. uh, That we already gave him. Yeah, just tweeted. I think was the deal. Blasted out on so, social media. So we're wearing Valpo shirts today. Yep, <laughs> Horizon League champions. Yeah, hey, we're all in on the Crusaders, baby. <laughs> Valpo Sports Nation coming to you at the top of the hour. Paying a debt. Well, at least you didn't shave your head. That's better. Yeah, all bets are better than that. Jeez, mm, I liked that one. That was. I felt really good about it. Some people. Yeah. Oh well. Whenever I look back at that, I'm like, that happened. <laughs> it did. Wow. And it, 
listen, that was one of the uh, turning point moments of our show. No kidding. I think it needs. I think we need another. We need another one of those. You guys need to pick it up. One of those. Just do something, but not that one. Well, maybe. Yeah. I mean, you could switch (laughs) off. Maybe. You know, maybe Spence does something. We've, we've I tried to run a four nine. I remember that. That on was good. National television. Okay, that was great. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> does that mean it's my turn? What's the next thing? Well, try. You tried hard. <laughs> did mustache last year. We did all kinds of juvenile. But they had here. just they had just aerated the lawn, and that slowed you down a millisecond. It was windy. It was windy. That you, it was. Your spandex was too tight. No, I well. <laughs> Should have been more spandex. Exactly. There should have been more spandex involved because that big basketball shorts. Yeah, that's true. Exactly. I knew there was something wrong with you. Clearly, I was taking it super serious. Yeah. You need to bring cleats. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. (laughs) Next time. Next time. Well, guys, it sounds like a great show. I know you got to pretend like you don't have to go get anything ready, but I know you do. Somebody's zipping up. It's a great sign. <laughs> You're trying to cover the Valpo shirt, aren't you? Yep. I get it. All right, guys. Have a great show. Knock them dead. You got it, brother. Peace out, yo. Yeah. They, they, see, that's why we don't bet on our show because uh, then we'd be wearing, you know, Trump gear, Clinton gear. You frequently say, I bet you dollars. Yeah. But usually it's not while we're on the air. Yeah. So if you're wrong about uh, the problem with my washing machine, then uh, hopefully the dollars that you bet me will be sufficient to pay for a new washing machine. How many dollars did we bet? You just said I bet you dollars. Yeah. See, so it's unclear. And so if your washing washing machine continues to leak, then I might owe you dollars or doll hairs. Oh, you're one of those the guys. The old trick we used to play in grade school. That's why my do- my sister's dolls were all bald. Because <laughs> I had to, a lot of debts to pay back. So you were really lousy at betting. Horrible. I am a bad better. So, um, And when you bet, other people suffer. Wow. That sounds dark. It sounds sad, even. Uh, so much to talk about on the show. One of the things, um, I'm trying to find it, that just blew my mind. I was reading an article the other day um, about men and women's brains. Are they actually different? Because there's there's all this suggestion that the brains are different. But then we've had people on the show, and I had a brother-in-law who's a neuroradiologist said, if we took the female brain and the male brain, we wouldn't be able to discern. If I took a genius's brain and you know the village idiot's brain, I couldn't tell you the difference. I haven't yet had that uh, male and female brain talk with my children yet. Oh. I don't think they're quite ready for it. Yeah, don't. They're, they're young. But basically, here's here's the here's some of the latest and greatest research. Uh, it's often assumed that the, the differences are that, that they're there. That somehow we have these innate differences between men and women. We're hard, hardwired that way. Well, that's true. In most societies, men and women act differently from each other. So it's it might be that we're just as different societally as we are uh, as men and women are different. So it might be your social upbringing. Don't always assume everything is a gender difference because it it might very well just be they're from another country or, as the book implied, they're from another planet. Hmm. Um, anyway, there's a lot we can get into um, on this, but 
one of the basics uh, is just and there's a variety of studies and a lot of people do not want to talk about the differences. But it just simply might be how we do spatial reasoning, how we remember things, what we remember. It's not that women use more words than men. It might simply be it's just how we use the words, when we use the words, where we use the words. Women definitely use more words than men. No, the research actually doesn't bear that out. It doesn't bear it out. Hey, uh, our hero of the day. Subway riders come together to help a a man late for a job interview. Salma Hamidi says several random acts of kindness during a subway ride last week reminded her how happy she is to be Canadian. Hamidi said strangers, uh, young and old, from all different backgrounds, came together in Toronto subway to help a man who was running late for a job interview. Hamidi, an Iranian immigrant, was living in Canada and has uh, for approximately 12 years And last week, she saw something she had never seen on the subway before. Fellow passengers reached out to a Russian man sitting beside him, asked if everything was okay in a a pretty heavy accent. Hamidi said um, in a Facebook post, he said he has a horrible headache and is running late for an interview. That's when Hamidi offered him some Advil. He thanked her and uh, had nothing to take it. So a Middle Eastern woman sitting beside uh, her wearing a hijab uh, uh, took a juice box from her kid's backpack, gave it to him so he could take his medicine. And uh, then others were talking to him about the interview that he'd be having. Um, she recommended that he not make any excuses for why he was late, but instead just apologize. Others on the train helped him prepare for his interview. Everyone was there. And then somebody helped him uh, with a hair tie because he had long hair. All these people getting together to help one person get a job. See, folks, heroes everywhere. And you can be one as well. Just open up your heart. When you see somebody in need, reach out, say something positive, lift them. And that's the goal of the show. Help you see the good in the world. Remember, you're part of that good. We'll take, uh, no, we'll be back tomorrow. More ideas, more information to help you live longer and stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Until tomorrow, make it a great one.